appreciated Texas Roads from Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas Barbecue. Had some brisket for lunch, so uh, we're getting acclimated here pretty quick. And so uh, Eric will be talking tonight and tomorrow uh, out of working out of Genesis 2. And so look forward to that. Let me pray and we'll I'll turn it over to Eric. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us for life and godliness. We thank you for the instruction that's there. We pray, Lord, that you would use uh, Eric this evening to uh, teach us and see more uh, of the, the gems in your, in your word and that we would uh, grow to love you more and understand your world and uh, the place that you've given to us in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, y'all, uh, thank you very much for having me here. It's so good to see all of you here and hope to see you also tomorrow. I look forward to this whole discussion. And I call it a discussion. If you want to really have a burning question, feel free to, to raise your hand and I'll try to answer and, and, keep, and also keep us on talk, target. Um, the way I want to, uh, first of all, you have some handouts. One of the handouts I gave you was a, a poem. If you haven't heard about it, it's, it's an old poem by Rudyard Kipling called The Female of the Species. It's really interesting, and I think that you ought to read it one time or one day, and you'll see how some of what he says will fit into what I'm going to talk about, especially tomorrow. And um, it's really interesting. And then you have another handout, which is a, the passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 2 that we're going to look at in some details today. Let me give you a little introduction of where, where we're headed and what's going, what's going to go on here. <clears throat> you can use Genesis really in two ways, if you think about it. You can use Genesis as a prototype of the rest of the Bible and start at Genesis and start studying the rest of the Bible. You can look at all the seven days of creation and see how they, fore they foreshadow Christ. And Christ really does reflect a fulfillment of all the seven days of creation in some sense. You can look at Ch Genesis chapter 2 and see Adam and anticipating the new Adam and the wife, the bride, anticipating the church. You can look at Genesis 3 and see that he's going to cast down the serpent to the ground, promises to crush his head, and then he restores Adam and Eve back together. Uh, there's a little microcosm of redemption, and it's fulfilled even later in the Bible. A lot of theology focuses on a, a helpful, circular reasoning in the book of Genesis. Where you look at Genesis, and you go back to Revelation, look at Genesis, and you're studying the Bible, and you understand theology. And that's not really my intention today or just in this conference. We're going to look at Genesis to shine light down on reality. On why does a man function the way he does? Why does a woman function the way she does? Why do they operate this way? Uh, you read psychologists and various things like this. You go to school, and they will tell you that we've evolved to become who we are. Um, you know, evolution and all that stuff. <clears throat> and social scientists, people who study the sexes, people who make a living trying to understand how females do, do their thing and males do their thing, will make observations. And what they'll do is a lot of these people are not Christians, and they'll label things. Like a, a man will do this, a woman does this, and they'll put names on it. They'll put labels on it. They'll be observing stuff. And 
What I intend to do today, or not today, but throughout this whole conference, is to show you that sometimes they'll make a good label. They'll make a good observation. And they'll correctly identify a behavior, a behavioral problem in a marriage, a dysfunction in the marriage or something like this, or how to keep a marriage, and they'll have various terms to put on it, which is helpful. But what I want to show you today is why. I want to show you that in Genesis chapter 2, that what God is doing, he is actually determining how a female will function. He is determining how a male will function. There's, and you think, well, how is this? Is it, in the gra- is it in the grammar? Is it in the history? You know, what's going on? How are you interpreting this, Eric? Some of it's in the grammar. Some of it is. But here is the, the key to the kingdom to see how God is doing this and giving you light to reality. And that is the pattern. It's, it's so beautiful and so important to see that the way God is doing something, the flow of it, the flow of the text, he is doing something in a certain way, and he's basically saying, do you get it? Do you see it? This is how I'm doing this, and that's why you as a male function the way you do, why you initiate. This is why a female is going to be a responder. The way he does things is what I'm going to get into, and I call it the Matrix, okay? I know you've probably all seen the movie, The Matrix and everything, but uh, it's a really helpful term because a matrix is basically a pattern that comes down and it formulates, it dictates, it determines, and how the pattern is set, that is also going to create more duplicates, more and more patterns, what God does in Genesis 2 is, is a pattern of sexuality. And he's also going to put a lot of things together here. I'm going to show you on the chart here. And he is that basically teaching humanity, man, this is how you're supposed to function. Woman, this is how you're supposed to function. And this is how we put it together. Put the two pieces of the jigsaw pieces together. And uh, that's my goal. That's what I'm, I'm doing. I'm not, uh, so we're going to use this, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to go through the, the passage and look at the pattern. And what I want to do today is, tonight, I want to lay the foundation. We're going to read the text together. I want to make some drawings on the board. And then what I'm going to do is, is give you a pathway forward for the next three lessons we have. I want to show you the focal points that I want to make on the next three lessons. Um, also, let me introduce this and say it like this. this. What we're going to do here is kind of like going to the doctor. You go to the doctor and he gives you bad news. This may be some bad news, meaning this, oh my goodness, that's what I'm supposed to do? This is, this is where my marriage falls short? This is where my masculinity falls short? This is, this is like showing why I have a problem in my marriage. That's one angle of this. When you see the pattern and what God does, it also it shows us kind of how we fall short. But that's also the good news because, oh, there's corrective ways to improve a marriage, to improve a man, to improve a wife. There's strategies that I'm going to try to share to say, how can I rekindle desire in my wife for me? How can I attract a girl that I want to marry? 
These are all in the pattern in Genesis chapter 2. When you start thinking and seeing what God is doing in his demonstration, it is giving life to reality. And so all these sexual scientists out there that are sharing with you, you know, game theory and how to pick up girls and all this other stuff because they're studying how women work and they're studying how men work, uh, they may label things right. And they're non-Christian. All these guys are non-Christians. I'm going to give them credit where credit is due. I may say, yeah, this guy, and this is his name, and he had a good diagnosis of how this works. But I'm telling you why he sees it. It's here in Genesis chapter 2, and it's beautiful. Okay, that's where we're going. So... Let's lay the foundation in Genesis 2. Let's work through the text. I'm going to plow through this. I'm going to draw, and then I'll see y'all uh, tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Number one, look at your, uh, look at your uh, handout. I call it the sexual matrix. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. First of all, it says this in verse 4. This is the offspring of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Right here, that word offspring, some translations say history. That's a horrible translation. Um, It can be generations. But what you see here is heaven and earth, the highest heaven, the highest heaven is up here. And this is a reference to the highest heaven because where does God's breath come from? It comes from the heavens, the highest heavens. It comes down to earth. And here is earth right here. And there is a type of marriage, a type of marriage, or you can call it a kiss. God is going to blow on the ground and create. So you have heaven and earth coming together, and there is a child. There is a child of heaven and earth, and his name is Adam, as you well know. Uh, He is an offspring of heaven and earth. You and I, all of humanity, are made of dirt, our flesh, and our soul comes from God. Language comes from heaven. Uh, Adam spoke because this is a gift from God. And language cannot come from earth. Okay, so evolution's wrong. So anyway, the point is, you can study that. That's, a, that's another rabbit trail. You can go on forever, uh, for a long time. But Adam's a child of heaven and earth. Uh, he's an offspring. There's a, there's a marriage. There's a, there's a union. But notice this. It's coming down. It's coming down. All right. And there's a... God had already made... A lower heaven here, okay, and that's the um, the lower heaven has the sun and the moon. I'll just pause right there and get to that later. All right, let's keep reading. Verse five: Every shrub of the field was not yet on the earth. The reason why the shrub is there mentioned is because the the creation is poised like this, waiting to see: Is Adam going to obey? If he obeys, there will be no thorns. On this shrub. Since he disobeys, the, the thorns will, go, will come up and curse him. Every herb of the field has not been sprouted. The herbs came up on day three, but they hadn't sprouted yet. So if he sins, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be hard to get the herbs off of, that, off of that fruit. If he obeys, it'll be easy. This is all anticipating the curse and what's going on. The Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. All right? Rain would have come down and blessed Adam. Just like the rain came down and blessed Israel in the sea, or going through the Red Sea. But no, no rain is going to come down. It's going to be, he's going to be cursed because of the fall. And the only rain you get later is, a, is a, the damnation of, of Noah's flood. 
It's not about meteorological stuff. It's about a blessing and a curse. The, the world is poised and wondering, is he the child going to obey or not? Okay. Now, a spring, verse, verse 6, a spring ascended up from the, excuse me, there was no man, verse 5, there was no man or Adam to till the Adama, the ground. <clears throat> Notice this. Adam is made to do work. To do what? To work. The intention that God has is this Adam is going to go back to that ground and work it right there. That's very key important. We're going to see. Verse 6. A spring ascended up from the earth. Some translations say a mist, and that's wrong. The reason why is because in the context of Genesis, what happens is, and this is very important here, everything's very important. In the context of Genesis, you have this spring coming up here. It flows downhill, and it comes to a place which God is eventually going to make called a garden. And as it comes to the garden, boom, it starts going more downhill, and it splinters into four directions. And here's what's critical. This garden is a barrier. This garden is a barrier. He's going to put Adam in there. He's going to build the woman in here. And these two individuals here, it's in a barrier. What happens in the barrier has consequences down here. God puts in the starry firmament, <clears throat> this is all part of the sexual matrix, okay? He puts a ruler in the starry heavens and another ruler in the starry heavens. In Genesis chapter 1, both of these rule. The sun is not the only ruler. The moon is also a ruler. Both of them are ruling. And the what's happening in the, in the heavens is a mirror image and it's reflecting what God wants to happen upon the earth. The sun is going to be representative of the man and the man representative of the sun. The moon is going to be representative of the woman and the woman representative of the moon. Now let me pause right here and say this. Pastor Eric, where are you getting all this? Twelve years ago, Whenever I was studying Genesis um, in microscopic detail, I was using James Jordan's commentary on it. And I thought, wow, that's awesome. You know, uh, the sun and the moon. And I, just, I, got, I got the connection. I got the link. There's a barrier here. There's a border here. And then, um, then two years ago, I saw this uh, pagan guy. He's a self-professed pagan named uh, Jack Donovan. And I was watching him a little bit, you know, just seeing what these guys would say. And he starts preaching his solar gospel. He said, men got to be like the sun. He gives all these metaphors and all these images about the sun. And I was listening, I was like, he's basically saying what James Jordan said. He's basically saying what the Bible's saying. My point is, in saying this, is pagans, non-Christians, they, they look at the, the world and they assess it and they diagnose it and they try to give a, a framework of how to live out in it. But again, it, it breaks my heart. I just wish people like that could say, yeah, it's in the Bible. It's all part of the created order. But they make up stupid superstitions like evolution or something. Um, but I'm, I'm doing all this just in case somebody ever hears this. I'm not plagiarizing uh, you know, Jack Donovan or something. I, I'm getting this from the Bible. I'm getting this from James Jordan, who did a great job on Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and other parts of the Bible. So this is part of the sexual matrix because what these two lights in the sky do need to reflect what these two rulers do here. And if they don't, the marriage is going to be compromised. That's why this is going to be very personal. 
we're going to talk about you, Mr. Sunlight, okay, with your Moonlight Woman. And that'll be tomorrow. All right. Also, look at this. Verse 7. It says that the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the, the breath of life. A man became a living soul. Um, that word form is very important. It's the first time that is mentioned in the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. That's a different word. He made the firmament. There's different verbs that's being used. But here's what I want you to think about. Since uh, a couple of you are builders and uh, construction workers, what do, you, what do you form first? You form a foundation. Okay? And where I'm going with this is that the man was formed. He was formed. And then something, whenever he, whenever the woman came along, uh, I'll go and ask you this, get some interaction. Do, you, do any of y'all know the verb in the Hebrew translated into English that was used for the woman in her creation in Genesis 2? Do you, you want to take a guess? Any guess? Huh? Good. We got some people here who are you light years ahead of me. I thought I thought y'all would be. The, the woman, <laughs> the man, and this is very critical with the language. This is where you can get the language in the in the Hebrew to help explain the pattern. The man is formed, and the woman is built upon the man in, in a sense. So, what do you build? You build buildings. You build houses. You build these beautiful structures. And so, where I'm going with this whole paradigm is the fact that God formed a man, uh, there's so much there to imply that the, the greatest virtue for this man that he's going to offer is strength. Strength in all of its forms. We're going to talk about this later. Okay? Uh, tomorrow. This is where I'm headed with this. The woman is built. It's a beautiful structure. And here, her great gift is sensitivity. Here you're going to have, we're going to see this tomorrow, in, in a, but there's, there's strength that he is offering and there's sensitivity that she is offering. This right here is the, the root issue of, of any marriage, the beauty of any marriage, the difficulty of any marriage. Uh, the problems, all these things, and it's, uh, it's all there in Genesis 2. So let's move on. That's how the man, God did the man. And notice this, let's look in verse 8. The Lord planted the garden eastward in, in, in Eden. Okay, he put the man there. Let me stop right there. <clears throat> the garden of Eden was on the east side, so when he kicked the man in the morning, woman out, they went eastward, and as soon as they got outside the garden, they were outside of Eden. Eden was a gateway. That was why it was a barrier. It was a firmament type of thing. And this is interesting. What did he do with the man after he formed him? He did what? He put him in the garden. So, was man created in the garden or outside the garden? Outside. Yeah, Adam is outside outside the garden. And then we can see this later. Whenever a woman comes along, she is inside. Her, her beginning point 
Her beginning point is more glorious. Her beginning point, where she starts, is inside the garden. Where he starts is outside. Okay. Um, I'm planting seeds here that we're going to fertilize, we're going to grow, okay? But it's, and again, why does God form a man in the first place? Because he came out of the Adama to go, to do what? There was no man to till the ground. Okay. You got to work. Um, let's move on to the next page. So you have the rivers there in verses 11 through 14 that's, that come out of the Garden of Eden from that spring that flows through the garden. Look at, look at in your page, verse 15, there are six jobs that he does good even before or including naming his wife. God took the man, put him in a garden to, to tend it and keep it. So he needs to start doing this. But also God built that garden right in front of, in front of Adam. So Adam is watching God. That's what it says in um, verse 8, I think it was. It says he built the man, or he formed the man, built the garden, and then put Adam into the garden. So Adam is being educated. He's watching God do it. And then God says, Adam, now you do it. It's a father talking to his son, modeling what we're doing here. And so Adam goes into the garden because God put him there, and then he starts obeying. God said, don't eat of this tree. Did Adam run right away and eat the tree? No, he obeyed for a few hours. He's starting to obey. And then God says, let's go get you a helper. Let's look at the animals. So the helper, he's going to have to be with. There's going to be a companion uh, that he's going to have to care for implicitly there in verse 18. Then he names the animals in verses 19 through 20. Now think about this obedience. What if Adam would have looked at a cow and said, I'm going to name this one Yahweh. What would happen? Take a guess. Cast out. Disqualified. You sin. That's what Aaron did, you know, uh, <laughs> later in the Bible. Here's a gold cow, and his name is Yahweh. Here's your, here's your Lord. Um, and here's what's important about this. In verse 19, God brought all the, all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air to him and, and brought them to Adam to see, to see what Adam would call them. God, as great as he is in love and everything, he's also watching. Every time God sees something, he's inspecting. It's a judgment. When God said, the light is good, he's judging the light, diagnosing it, and, and justifying it as good. Okay? That's what Adam, God is doing. So Adam is, is meeting the, the judgment seat of God rightly here in the garden already. He's working uh, things are going along, the pattern is going, and we're getting all of history started here. Next thing Adam has got to do <clears throat> is give up himself. Now, God is doing this. He's going to take the side out of Adam. And it's not a rib, just one little piece of rib. It's a side. It's a, that's literally the Hebrew there. It's, a rib is a side, so people, people translate it as a rib, but it's a side. He took a side out of Adam, and Adam, whenever the woman's built, says, this is bone of my bones. It's plural there. Implying that there was a couple of ribs that were taken with flesh. So God took it. And so what God is doing here is demonstrating, Adam, if you want a woman, 
You have to give of yourself. Boys, if you want a woman to marry later, you're going to have to show. You're going to have to give of yourself. She's going to be, to be attracted to you. Okay, this is what's going on. God is putting this marriage together. So Adam goes through this sacrifice. It's a type of death and resurrection with this sleep. Of course, it anticipates Jesus, and you can see all that. But what you see is that the, the reality of structural reality of sexuality, the initiative is coming from Adam. So God is, so, is, so God's showing, he's demonstrating that Adam, I'm going to take a piece of you. Adam, we're going to get a piece of you and we're going to glorify it. And let me tell you this, that what God does, he takes from Adam, takes it away, builds it, and brings her back. Now follow the, follow the imagery here. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. And I'm going to justify it even more tomorrow. And that is this. Whenever he took a piece out of Adam, God was symbolically taking that piece of Adam all the way to the end of history. In a symbolic and metaphorical sense, he took a piece, a side out of Adam, took it all the way to the end of history, and then he brought that piece of Adam all the way back. So you have this boomerang. The side of Adam goes all the way back, all the way over here, symbolically, metaphorically, and then comes back to Adam. Why am I saying that? Because she is going to be a sample. She is going to be a, a testament or a sacrament or a picture or a symbol of the glory of the latter day. Okay. Now, let me go ahead and jump to the chase here a little bit. Let me ask you this question. How, how sensitive is God going to be on the final day of judgment? How sensitive? He is going to judge every single thought. Every single word. Every single tone. The sensitivity of God is infinite over here on the final day of judgment. And so, and that's also where God wants to bring everything to where it's glorified and it's delicate, it's beautiful. But what God does is he brings this sensitivity all the way back into the present tense of the first year. And says, Adam, here's a sample of it. She's sensitive. She's glorious. And you think about that. I'm going, to, I'm going to go ahead and probably jump to the chase here on a lot of stuff for tomorrow. And let me say this. That you think about that. You approach a woman. You live with a woman. And it's like living with the final day of judgment all the time. <laughs> because you understand, well, you say it the wrong way. You approach it the wrong way. And what does she do? She responds. She responds. The final day of judgment is God's response to everything that has happened here. And so you come home, and you don't look good or whatever. You know, whatever. She responds to you. She's responsive. If your shoes don't match, she's going to respond to that. She's going to, you know, she's, you know, all these details. It's, 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 it's beautiful, it's glorious, but also it's humbling. Um, so, so there's a vertical axis of what God is doing. Watch this. He's got the, the man here, the woman here. 
The sunlight represents the man. The moonlight is representative of the woman. And let me ask you this question. Whose sunlight, who's, who's more glorious in this vertical dimension is obviously the sun. And in this vertical dimension, this is what you can call maybe a... Um, the who there are two rulers, but there's a hierarchy of rulers. The the man in this vertical dimension has more man has more glory on the vertical dimension. He has more glory to give to this relationship. He has more of a responsibility on the vertical dimension to give to this relationship and to function in this manner. We want to see. How does it represent this function tomorrow? On the horizontal dimension, who has more glory? It's the woman. And so I would do, I, I, this is a helpful word. This right here is about time. What God is doing with this marriage, he has taken the ends of history, the beginning of history and the ending of history, and symbolically bringing them together in a marriage. Kind of like two sacraments at the end of history, bringing them together, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, male and female, um, and all that they represent. She, the woman, on the time spectrum has more glory because of her sensitivity, her finesse, and where things are going in time. And there's a way in which these glorious parts, the vertical and the horizontal, come together to balance out and to contribute to one another. Um, and this right here, when we get to this tomorrow, is, is basically the foundation of the, sexual, of, the, of the sexual matrix of God. Now, let me go, move on a little bit here. When God puts them together, there's another matrix of how they're going to glue themselves together. And there's a circle that goes on. And they're glued, being glued together in this matrix in, at the end of Genesis 2 and the beginning of Genesis 3. And Satan breaks that circle. He breaks it and pushes the other way, pushes the other direction. And here's what I'm explaining to y'all. Think about this. If this is high and this is low, what's the opposite of heaven? There's hell. And here's a, little, a good sample of where we're headed. The more this man and this woman reflect their, their roles up here and the trajectory of time and one another, the more this marriage will go in a heavenly direction. The dimmer his light, the dimmer her light, and that they don't glue themselves together rightly, the more it'll go into a hellish direction end up in divorce. This is what I would call the heavenly hellish matrix of marriage. Right here. And when you chew on all this, when we get to the details of this, tomorrow I'm going to talk about the time aspect first. I want to talk about the complications of the woman coming from the future, so to speak, and the man coming from the past, so, or the first, so to speak, 
And the difficulties of that, uh, the challenges of that, especially for a man, and um, we're going to focus on that, on that tomorrow. That's going to be the second lecture, number two. The third lecture, or discussion, that we're going to talk about is up here. We're going to talk about the man's status. I'm going to talk about how do you keep that in a marriage? How do you maintain your sunlight more dominant than that moonlight? Um, and respect her more glory. Find that over there in, in, in this complexity. And then the, the last one, we're going to talk about the circle that's there and how it glues them together. Um, I love how, by the way, the, the passage in Genesis goes, starts off with this vertical dimension of heaven and earth coming together, and it ends in this other dimension of time coming together with God bringing the woman symbolically you know, to the future and back, back from the future, because she's the, the final glory. Uh, but that's where we're headed tomorrow. And so in your, in your handout, if you look at your handout, there is the summary of the sexual matrix on page two. The man is formed by God. It implies foundational strength. That's going to be his gift to the relationship. He's formed outside the garden. That's going to, that's going to be a, a symbol of him over here. He's outside. He has to work forward, work forward, and she's already inside. Being inside the garden is a symbol of her latter-day glory. There's a finality to her at the beginning. There's not a finality to him at the beginning. So going from outside to inside is a symbol of grabbing time as well and pulling it together. The, woman, the man is a masculine ruler in the sky. He's a son. He's formed for the ground. He then gives himself for the woman. We're going to talk about that. He's protological. That's a big word for the study of the beginning. She's built by God, implies her sensitive glory. Her sensitive glory. Uh, she's built inside the garden. There's a finality to that, implying again. She's basically from the future, so to speak. She's a feminine ruler in the sky. There's a delicacy. We're going to talk about the, the, how the, the light shine, um, and the differences of that, and what you learn from that. And also we're going to see more justification in the Bible for this paradigm tomorrow. And then, or this correlation, she's built after much work. There is a lot of work he does. The obedience, the naming. And we're going to see how there's a difference in the male and female in, as we look at this between appreciation and expectation. Appreciation and expectation. And a lot of that is, is, going to, is like dynamite in a marriage whenever... That doesn't fit well. We'll talk about that tomorrow. And she's the omega. She's the ending. Um, so I think that... I hope I explain myself well. The trajectory for tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to get into the nitty-gritty details of, of how do you live with the future? And how is her futureness expressed in her femaleness? Um, and then how do you maintain your sunlight? And why is that so important? And why, why, is, why does a woman need that? And to circle full back to where we began, this is why people make observations, pagan scientists, and they're looking at sexual dynamics and they're just seeing how females operate 
And what I'm showing you is that God made this whole creation like the womb, the matrix, that's another word for womb, of, of sexuality. This is shining light and giving you light on, oh man, now I know my wife functions this way. Now I don't know why you know, she acts that like that whenever something, and this, now I know what I need to do whenever she does this. The, the, all the pieces of a marriage are, are being fit together here. Um, and it comes from a, a deep meditation and chewing on the Bible. Um, so I'll stop. I'll pause that. Any questions? Y'all are too quiet for me. Nathan, so when you say the, the woman represents sensitivity, you're, you're not just meaning that oh, she has feelings, but there's, there's a lot more involved in that. You mean that she's. A thousand percent more involved. You mean that she's more detail oriented? Yeah. Let me go ahead and jump into that, yeah, that part of the pond there. Uh, a woman can feel things that you and I can't feel. They go into a room, and you know I feel, that guy's odd. They think you know they go into a, they they feel uh, social context so much better. It's called woman's intuition. Um, they are. Um, you know, I, you can go to the locker rooms, and I, I grew up with four brothers. You know, I can talk to them, and I got to talk with all y'all, and we can argue whatever and fight it out, you know, and be friends. A woman, dude, her, her, you can't talk to a woman like you talk to a man. She's, feelings are everywhere about her. That's what I'm getting in, into that. She is a, a feely creature. Um, so she's sensitive to color. Even she can pick up more color than male. Men are good at seeing things in the dark, women are not, but they can pick up color better. Better. Um, my next page, I have a list of little sensitivities of, of a female. Um, she, she's very, uh, we're going to talk about the nature of feminine is to respond. She's a responder, and she's responding to everything. You know, if I dress, don't, if I don't dress right, she, she responds to my, you know, y'all don't realize it, you know, my shoes don't really match my, my belt. My wife would have noticed that. Okay. <laughs> Stuff like that. Okay. Does that answer your question at all? I don't know if I'm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm just trying. I'm speaking off the cuff here, but uh, she's not. We have feelings. We're sensitive. We show it in different ways, I guess. But but she's a lot of these character traits. We um, let me say it this way. Yeah. We share some type of feminine qualities in this sense. We make judgments. You know, we have feelings. But she is all of that on steroids, you know. And she may initiate. She may, you know, go out and do a job and work hard. You know? But but a man has more. It's it's um, it, it's kind of a who has a, a more predominant role in 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 these in these qualities. Um, and this is a, a pattern. Uh, I wouldn't say that if this is like a rule of thumb. You can always find exceptions to the rule. But as a rule of thumb, as a pattern of how things are going to flow, that's where. And um, there's, there's a, as tomorrow I'm going to say, men are, are oblivious and obvious. That's one of our fatal flaws as men. We're oblivious. A lot of times. A woman is not. She can sense it. She can pick it up. And you are so obvious the way you were looking. It would, you know, everybody saw it. You know, the women do this all the time. They see things, and um, and so and so that's where I'm, I'm talking about the sensitivity. Any is that any other question? 
form or make things. Sometimes the English word made or make is used to translate that word for form. Uh, in, in a lot of the English translations, the, for the word for build is bana, not banana, but it's bana. And the English in the Genesis chapter 2 always translates it as, as made. God made the woman. God made the woman. Because it doesn't sound really good to say God built her. But, but when you look at the bana later, you, it's, it's banah, you banah the tabernacle, you banah cities, you banah, you build the temple. All that language, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really distinct word for building. And so if, that's, if she's the building and she needs to rest on the strength of the man, then that's just, that's just beautiful right there. That's, is that, that, that's, that's, did that answer your question? Um, but yeah, banah is the word for building, and I, f- I forget the really Hebrew word for the form. Any other questions before we? Are, I don't want to take up your time. Yeah. Um, did, did any of that? Did any of her makeup change from being built uh, to after the fall, or is the sensitivity did it stay the same as far as the woman? Good question. Uh, I think a larger question is: is how much did the fall? affect uh, the sexual makers, the man and the woman. So <clears throat> I think what you have here is that they're still, we're still made in the image of God. The fall disables, the fall corrupts. The man is kind of, if a man is lazy, you know, he's not initiating, that's where you see a, an aspect where he's not doing what he ought to be. If she's not bringing her glory to relationship, that's where you know, so the fall definitely does corrupt this whole thing together, but I do not think that it, that it negates all of it. And number two, redemption does not negate this either. Redemption helps you fulfill this. Redemption helps you do this, okay? And if you study the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon is up here, okay? <laughs> Their marriage is in the heaven of heavens, all right? Because it is really about God and His church. So, to answer your question, I, I don't think at all there's any evidence in the text whatsoever that her feminine nature is altered by the fall with sensitivity. I think she's still sensitive. It's just that what, God, what Satan does is he's going to use things that God gives and pervert it or distort it. Uh, Satan really doesn't uh, totally erase something. He just imbalances it. Two things that Satan all, will always want to do. Make something out of balance or out of bounds. Always. And the way he destroys marriages is a lot of this just simply gets out of balance. And does that answer your question? Yes. Uh, so when we're dealing with the structure of reality. Why we still function this way, and, and, it's, and we're, I guess grace helps us do this the way God designed originally. Yes, Randy? In going with that, this drive to want to be perhaps the opposite of 
exactly. What is the, the thing in which we want to be God and we don't want God to tell us what maleness or femaleness is? Right. You're right. Your, your diagnosis of the whole culture is to overthrow the matrix here. The culture is trying to say that, we, yeah, you, you're right. And this is why I think this is uh, very appropriate for our day and age, especially in America. So uh, you know, going against this is like cutting your hand and going against a buzz saw. You know, it, 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 it's just going to tear you up. This is why transgenders, if you go from one to the other, it's, they have to do a form of suicide. They have to kill a part of their body. They have to kill a part of themselves and, and try to you know, glorify themselves or something like that with transgender. And it's sad. Um, the challenge is, is we live in this... We live in the matrix, we live in the bubble of the matrix, and it's a created matrix, it's a beautiful matrix, and it's not up for free will. It's not up for free, you can't just get out of it unless you destroy yourself. And that's really what God is showing in this pattern here. Thank you, Randy. Uh, any other thought on that? I, I read something this week that just pops in mind that's helpful that if we think about what are the differences between male and female, we tend to think of our bodies. Physical difference, in exactly. Every single cell in your body that makes a difference between male and female. That's why the, the transgender issue is really a costume contest. <laughs> they, they disfigure themselves and get a costume, but all their DNA is, is wired as they were born. Um, and DNA is about information. Mm-hmm. This is the DNA of humanity. This is the, like the, all the, the mate symbolism is what I'm, I'm using that term. This is the womb of humanity. The two cells come together in a womb and the matrix is set. And that's why you have blonde hair and the way you look the way you do is because the way the cells are put together in the matrix of the womb, now you're birthed out. And, that's and so what God does on the, the small scale of conception, he does on the big scale of, of reality. There's a sliding scale from the great to the small, macro to the micro. Um, I'll tell you this another thing too. This, this is a, a firmament. It's a barrier. When Christ united heaven and earth, the firmament was removed. So to speak, the veil was rent and heaven and earth come together. This is why women, when they get married, there's a little firmament inside of them. So when the marriage is consummated, there is some bloodshed, and there is a picture of the rent, of the severing of heaven and earth. The marriage of heaven and earth is symbolized by the marriage of the man and the woman. From the micro to the macro. This is how beautiful God is. Any other questions? Back on the I think uh, the challenge with Hebrew is context is key uh, with nouns and verbs. 
you know, whether it's past tense, present tense, and context is key. And so you can you probably get a lexicon and see the different places where the form is mentioned. And I looked it up briefly, and it's, it's just, he, he forms a lot of things. It's a lot of things out there that are formed. But the banana is really focusing on the uh, structures. So that's the best I can remember about the two different. You have a we have the word is yoser, which is the verb. It's the verb form of the noun of the potter. So he potterings the man. Yeah, he's forming that. Right. He formed the dirt and then blew in the nostrils. Um, any other questions? All right. Um, we'll see you tomorrow at 8 o'clock, Randy, right? Well, I believe there's a fellowship over at Jonathan's house now. Whoever wants to come, that boy, hang out time. Is that right, Jonathan? Yes. Okay, let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the illumination of your word, how it shines throughout reality and our existence and, and, and gives us patterns to follow. And we pray, Father, that you'll be with our, our culture, our country, and give them your word and spirit, Lord, and bring them to Christ Jesus in faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord, just with the way you created the world. Give us your scripture as your guide and insight and in how we are to rightly be husbands and fathers and serve you and serve others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'm going to pick up where we left off. Has, was anybody not here yesterday? I just want to know. Okay. Um, don't worry. You're going you're to catch up quick. Um, time has a beginning and an ending. You can think about it on a horizontal axis. And this is taught in the Bible. It's taught in Genesis chapter 2. We talked about this. And just to kind of build on the, what we've been doing, there's a first and there's a final. The man is the first. The feminine is the final. And what I'm going to call this is the archetypes of time. Because something begins and then something receives. Something, and you think about it and all of life is kind of structured this way. But when you start thinking in this paradigm, it really helps put a lot of pieces together, and it's going to put human <coughs> marriages together, uh, the function of male and female, and we'll get to that soon. So let me start building the roadblock. This can keep going down, down, down if the board was long enough. First, there's final. There's form. The man was formed. She is built. He started outside the garden. That's where his, he originated. And then she started inside the garden. There's a type of finality to even her beginning. It's kind of an ironic thing. He's an initiator. He has to give of himself for her to be built. And she's a responder. Um, when God brings her back to the man, he is basically demonstrating she is going to respond to what you do. She's going to respond, and hopefully, Lord willing, she responds with her glory. Okay? If she likes it. Um, giver, receiver. He is built, or he's formed, I'm sorry, of strength. He's a foundation. She, is, she has sensitivity. I want to get to more details on this soon. There's a talker, 
and then there's a listener. There's a teacher, there's a class. There's a benefactor, someone doing, there's someone receiving, a beneficiary, someone receiving. There's a pastor preaching, and there's a congregation. It's one reason why the paradigm of uh, uh, if you have a woman preacher or a woman doing this, talking to a congregation, you have a lesbian relationship being symbolized there. Okay? You, you, um, so this is the deep structure of humanity. Um, and you have the sun up here, but this is a, that's a vertical axis. Uh, this is the horizontal axis of time. And now, let me sh share with you this. There are false religions, pagan religions, that have observed this and they say, oh yeah, uh, the yin and the yang fit together like this, okay? That's just a simple observation that they're doing on creation, and they make up a superstitious religion, and they have, you know, Eastern religions are filled with this kind of Buddhism or, or yin and the yang, you know, this complementary, how it all fits together. Um, but what I'm sharing with, sharing with you is why they observe that. Why does people look at creation and deduce stupid religions like that. Well, God did this. God originated everything. God's doing this in the Garden of Eden. He is he's structuring reality this way. And without the Bible, they don't worship the true living God. They worship a false God. And they make up other so they build them. But the point is this is where you can appreciate observations that, pa that pa pagan will make or non-Christians will make. Or scientists will study something and say, hey, this is how it works, this is how it functions. And the scientist may not be a believer or not, but they're making a good observation. But you can use the Bible to say, that's the origination of your observation. And so whenever I refer to people today, with, and they use labels and terms, like I would call them sexual scientists. They study sexuality. They study how male and female function. They're going to put labels on things, and I'm like, yeah, that's a good observation of how the man and the woman work together, what she does, what he does, how it's supposed to fit. It's a good observation. But I want to say, guy, this didn't come from evolution, like you're arguing. It came from God's structure of reality. It came from how everything is designed in the universe and how it functions. So this is why the value, I believe, in Genesis chapter 2 helps to uh, you know, win people over to the true and living worldview. And so, moving on, on with this, is there's a, a lady who's a feminist. Uh, she's not a Christian, but she said this, I think if, if I pronounce her name rightly, it's Kamal Paglia. And she said this, a, a woman simply is. A man must become. And what she says is basically this. She's observing the world. A woman, what she's saying is a woman must simply be, and a man must become. And what she is getting at, and I haven't read much of her at all, I just like that quote. And a lot of people pick up on her and say, yeah, and they, and they play with it. But this is kind of, this is what's happening here. A man is the originator. He's becoming something. He's doing something. And, and she is basically this. She is the recipient. Now, this functions with everybody in some form or fashion. This is why it's an archetype, not an only type, meaning this. Sometimes, okay, the woman is, is the cooker. 
She's cooking. Sometimes she initiates things. Sometimes she will give something. Well, the man is over here receiving. Receiving. He's in the feminine category of being the receptor. Okay? So, but, so they all share giving and receiving. This kind of aspect of it. There's a way in which you are on the feminine side of the equation whenever you're the class. When you're the teacher, you're on the masculine side of the equation. Whoever it is. But there's a archetype of the, the primary role of the feminine, the primary role of the masculine. Uh, so, is that clear? I was gonna, uh, I don't wanna confuse y'all, okay? Uh, that's where I'm getting at. That's why I call it archetypes because it's, it depends on who's doing it, but there's a main, there's a, there's a main primary function of, of, of the male and female. Go ahead. Are you saying it's okay to step outside of the masculine role temporarily? Uh, in, in, inevitably, inevitably, everybody will. Everybody's going to share in this paradigm. Somebody's going to be the, a giver. Like right now in our conversation, we're playing ping pong. I talk, you talk. I talk, you talk. And so there's this, if I'm receiving, I'm listening to you. I'm the, on the feminine side of the equation. If you're giving... You're on the masculine side. Now I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm on the masculine side of the equation, and you're, you're receiving it. That paradigm is what you see in Genesis. There is this male-female archetype in the sense that he is giving, she's receiving. Let's take from him and give to her. He's a benefactor. She's a beneficiary. And so it's inevitable that there's going to be this, there's, there's going to be this exchange of, of duty or responsibility in any kind of context. It's just that on uh, the, the standard, the, the main function of the female nature, she's wired in this direction. The man is wired in this direction primarily. That's why I think these qualifications of primary, majority, most of the time, general rule, of thumb, that's, that's helpful. Does that make sense? Is that clear? We, we men are hardened by the bride of Christ, so as a congregation, every Sunday we're... Yeah, as a congregation, you gather together uh, as a church, and the bride of it's a men are in the receiving end of the equation here. Uh, right, exactly. Any other questions to clarify before I move on? You have a confused look on your face. So are you, you, you wondering? Or you, yeah. I, I, you, I, if I see a confused look, look, I want to... That's the freshman confused look. It was like... <laughs> I was like, I'll, I'll answer the question. I'm not afraid of questions, honestly. And if you disagree... And even if you disagree, I'm not afraid of that too. Because uh, we're all learning here. Uh, it's called the School of Faith. Um, I just have a question. I look at Gail Smacks and I would cover this. So if, if everything on the left column is the archetype of masculinity, and everything on the right, top, the right column is the archetype of femininity, as men, should our goal to not all, should we not always be striving to meet that archetype of masculinity? And if so, where do we run into, or how do we, how do we equate that with recognizing our superior in a particular way? So meaning, there are some men that are, I'll use Jason as an example. Jason's a more gifted teacher than I am. 
a P&I and organic relationship, he's always going to have that more masculine archetype of the teacher, and I'm going to have a more effeminate, or feminine um, archetype of the, the receiver. But shouldn't, as a man, trying to follow the men must become archetypes, should I not always be striving to be an autonomous? Um, <coughs> wisdom would say dependence depends on the situation. Book of, book of Proverbs is going to say, do I answer the fool or do I not answer the fool? So wisdom calls for context. Where are you, where are you here? Do you need to be the listener or do you, do you need to be the initiator? The initiator? Uh, all these things like that. And let me give you another little paradigm, I guess, to explain where I'm, I'm getting to explain this. Uh, uh, if you bottleneck, bottleneck something up here and you want to divide it up and, and sprinkle it down, you know, it's, and that's kind of what's going on here is that uh, time, every, everything time has a beginning and end, you know, the talking and receiving. So you, you have to have the wisdom to know, you know what, this guy's gifted in this area. Uh, this guy can bench 300 pounds, and I'm going to learn from him on how to work out and become like him. Okay. This guy's uh, gifted in history, and so I'm going to listen. You know, this is where the body of Christ comes in and says, you know, all these people have different gifts, and we're going to glue them together, and the hands are going to work with the foot and all that stuff. Um, so I, this is not to, you know, to say that you always have to initiate or something like that. What I'm trying to say is that you need to understand that there's a we're, we're going to play the role somewhere. But in the in marriage relationship, there needs need, need to be a predominance of one doing the other. And I'll put it this way. Uh, if if uh, a woman's always going to be She's always going to want to respond. Uh, she wants to, you know, approve what you have done and look at it. She wants to say yes, you know, and um, if she doesn't like it. She's going to say no. Uh, she's going to close her heart up, whatever. And the, the, and the man is primarily going to be the initiator, the leader, the driver. So I didn't want to cookie cut everything and say that um, I don't want to simply. Can't, you can't just simply say the man's only going to do all that stuff right here. This is not accurate. Because there's going to be pair, there's going to be patterns where you're actually going to receive it into something. Does that answer your question or does it make it more confusing? I think for the question because it helps me explain this a little bit better. Um, any other questions before we move on? Maybe. I was going to say it's like you, you mentioned cooking. Like the woman yeah. may start cooking, but where did she eat? Where's it? I earn some money and give her the authority. I'm, I'm in the masculine role there, so it's a back and forth. What conversation? What you're getting at and you're sniffing at is where we're going in the fourth lecture. There's the circle of love where he gives, she gives, he gives, she gives. And you see this in Genesis in a nutshell, and then Satan stops it. And the same thing with the, the garden of, uh, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, I think. Um, she starts saying, Come into my garden. And my garden is yours, my garden is yours. And then he comes in and says, I love my garden, I love my garden. And you're like, well, whose garden is it? It's kind of the nature of love, where they're giving so much <laughs> uh, that you don't know whose garden it is. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Because it's giving and giving and giving. And that's kind of a reflection of the Holy Trinity. Um, so that, 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 that's, it's the nature of love, basically. This, this, is, this is love. This is agape. Two people coming together, basically. Two, and, and if you use the parent.
paradigm of time that helps to kind of put a handle on this. Okay, I'm using a macro viewpoint here. I'm going to get to the, some practical stuff pretty quick. Any more questions? Um, go to your, go to your um, notes. I'm going to take care of you. This may help answer the question that came up earlier about gifts and stuff. Concerning, look at the first page, the matrix of gifts and time. The man has the gift of strength. And here's some virtues, some strength virtues. That, and let me, let me stop right here. We're all at different stages of life. You may be 80 years old or 18 years old. At 18 years old, you're strong, you're able, you've got the future ahead of you, but you may have no money. At 80 years old, you got your money, but man, you know, you don't have the strong strength or energy. So at, at every stage of life, this is going to vary. And men and women have their different strengths and weaknesses at different stages of life, and they have their different attractions to one another. Um, so let me just get to this. Strength virtues. A man will have some physical, more physical strength. And we all have different degrees of these kind of strengths over uh, more so, more or less than others. A man, a strength virtue is leadership strength, emotional strength, meaning she can cry a lot, but not you. Um, attractive strength. And what I mean by that is romantic, sexual, meaning this. A woman is a judge. She looks, or the feminine, feminine side of the equation looks and says, I don't want to go out with that guy. Or looks and says, I like that guy. And it's just, she, uh, whoever, or you may be on this side of the equation. You say, man, that's a pretty girl. I'm going to ask her out. Or no, I don't want to ask her out. So you're, you're, you're making an observation. You're responding to the, to, the, to, the, to the scene. And this is just, you know, and some people have more attractive strength. Some people have less attractive strength. This is concerning the male perspective. Financial strength. Some men have more financial strength than others. Relational strength, meaning... Can you talk to people? Can you interact? Uh, do you have social skills? Uh, judicial strength. Make a decision and, and live the consequences. Or deal with the problem. Move on. I can't make a decision. Indecisive. Have, have you ever heard anybody like that? I, I don't know what to do. You know, yeah, something like that. If, if you live like that, you're, you're lacking in judicial masculine strength to make a decision uh, and follow through. Self-awareness strength, meaning... I'm aware of myself. I don't want to, you know, offend this person, that person. I'm self-aware. People have different levels of self-awareness, strength. Men do, especially. Um, fighting strength. Somebody comes in to your family, you uh, to, to hurt them. You want to kill them. You want to, you know, defend your family. Girls need that safety. They look for, oh, I can, I feel safe with this physical strength. So these are realities of the world that that God's dealing with in the masculine level. Risk-taking strength. You go into a business, you borrow money, and you're like, yeah, I gotta go and do this and provide for my family. Uh, a lot of that's a strength of, of masculinity to initiate, uh, to cut down a tree and build a house and clear a path and you know bulldoze through. Initiating strength, strength of friends. Y'all have that here. Uh, strength of, of men around you. If you're by yourself and isolated, then you're you know you don't have the strength of a thousand men. And so there's. This is just different aspects of masculine strength. Now, in your notes, um, Satan's goal is always to make something out of balance or out of bounds. Here's some uh, vices of strength if it goes out of, out of balance. Number one, oblivious. Men, they're risk takers, that's good, but you know what? He may not see danger. <laughs> 
I'm a risk taker, I want to go out there, but oh no, he doesn't see the danger and he fell into a pit or whatever. Um, he, he may not care. A risk, a man's like, I don't care what people think, I'll do what I got to do. He's overt. Uh, but that not caring attitude, that, you know, conquer the world, alpha male kind of thing, he, he may be stepping on toes and, and, and he may be burning bridges left and right and he becomes a moron because he is oblivious to, to what he's doing. That's a tipping of the scales of masculinity. A man also may, uh, may be, he may, he may not also be oblivious, but he may be obvious. You know, uh, if a man does this, you know, I mean, you, you saw, you, everybody saw you look at that person like that. And sometimes men are very overt. You know, we, we communicate overtly, and sometimes our actions are so obvious, it can be seen, and sometimes we make a fool of ourselves. And so uh, we have overt communications, we have overt intentions. Um, now, also, another imbalance is, uh, you know, bum wolf. Um, I am, I'm going to conquer, I'm going to be a man. And then that, might, that, that imbalance may gravitate to isolationism or individualism where you're, you're, you're so cut off where you actually don't have a matrix of friends and you know, allies and associates to, to advance forward with, with your tribe, with your troops. Um, so no general ever won a war by himself. He had to have troops under him or with him and fighting with him. So these are where the strengths of men are there, but then they can, they can sink the boat, man, if you tip the boat too far to one way or another. Femininity is kind of similar, but a different, a different aspect. She has a gift of what I would call sensitivity um, for this. Look, her virtue is this. She's sensitive for glorification. She's sensitive of, of feelings. Uh, she can feel, um, she, she can look at you and just, and just feel, you know, if you're manly or not. She can look, just women have that feeling issue all the time. A sensitivity of decoration. A woman will look at here and maybe critique the color and wonder why didn't you put flowers up there? Uh, what, what, what's wrong with it? Why didn't you put a, you know, something like that, you know? A, a woman will come in here and maybe say, yeah, a man built this, you know, something like that. Uh, that's, you know, houses, stuff like that. Uh, a woman, she's sensitive of beauty, she's sensitive of words, she's sensitive of tone. You know, you can say something, but man, if you say it the wrong way, you just trigger every single thing she feels, and she's defensive, and, and now all of a sudden it's not about what you said, it's about how you said and you angled in wrong, and what is she doing to your words? She's, she's responding. She's giving you a verdict. Her response is a judgment. Her response is, is either approval or disapproval, and, and she's, that's the, the final judgment coming into reality. It's the final judgment coming into your family, into your life on a day-in-day-out basis. Because you said it that way, something like that. Or you said the wrong words. Um, okay, she's sensitive of social context, like I've been talking about. She's sensitive of listening. Really? What did you say? What did you hear what you said? You know, things like that. Uh, a sensitive of appearance, like we said. You know, aesthetics, man, we can dress up like we want and everything like this. And a woman's like, that, that, that's just horrible. That doesn't fit. Um, you know, or whatever. Or you don't look good in that. Or, you know, I mean... You will be, you may be teaching or preaching, and, and if, if you're wearing a, you know, if I'm wearing a tank top up here, it was short, you know, but, uh, you, you guys can forget it. And say, so, okay, whatever, man, that's cool. Um, but, but a woman, a woman is going to just look at that the whole time and throw up, you know, mentally, emotionally, and, and just say, that's not masculine, or whatever. So, so she's responding to that, she's sensitive. 
here's where, here's where her sensitivities tip the boat for her. Number one, she's weak. She is weaker physically. Um, and she is emotionally weak. She needs to lean on someone. She's always looking for strength. Uh, she's going to be indecisive. What do I do? I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? Uh, you know, a lot of times, that's not, this is a rule of thumb, not always, but it's going to be her tendency. Uh, she's going to need leadership. She's going to need an initiator, a giver, a stronger, a talker, a, a teacher, a benefactor, a pastor, a, an outside the garden man who is formed, who is the first, and who is becoming. Okay? She is, um, she's like the electrical socket on the wall wanting to be plugged in. I mean, th this, this, is, this is her function. She's just there waiting, you know, to be uh, somebody to initiate. Okay. So that's, that's her weakness there. Her, and also another weakness that um, a sensitivity will, will give her is worry. She'll have anxiety more so. Um, I really believe women will be more anxious than men because of the weakness. She'll have a low risk tolerance. Uh, some women can, you know, obviously, go out there, and, but, 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 but that's when they're, they're taking more of a masculine role. But mo most women, are, are, a man can take some risk, a woman it, it cannot take that much risk as a man. They, there's going to be over-concern for nurture and provision. Is it all safe? Is it all secure? And all these things like this. And they, sometimes if you're too safety-oriented, you know, you'll never leave the house. Uh, you'll never, you know, go out there and do something worth their risk. So this is where the balance comes in with masculinity and femininity. Uh, she, she, if, you, if you're over-concerned for safety, over-concerned, you're going to prevent maturity. You're going to prevent growth. You're not going to have something to struggle with, or because oh, I got to protect. And then the child grows up and is, you never have to wrestle, never have to fight, you never have to, you know, deal with something. And because all the, you know, anyway, sometimes mother may, mother hen may just simply keep the kid in the incubator, and the, the child, the father is like, hey, we're going to get out there and got to do something, son. Uh, okay. So I'm hoping this to help you see. Why God made the world the way it is a structure of reality that masculinity, male, the man, primarily has gifts to give her. And she primarily has gifts to give him. And God is, is, is structuring reality like this to, to glue it together. You see this typologically as well in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. For example, in your handout, letter C. Look at the, it says there's, okay, there's balance here. There's sensitivity and strength. What happened on day three? The land comes up, and the sensitivity of the grass, grain, and fruit grow on the land. What's the theme of that? Foundation and growth. On day six, God formed the man out of the ground. He built the woman on top of her, which is just like the day three, where the land comes up, and he builds some, he grows some plants on top of the ground. That's a theme of foundation and glory. You see this in reality. All women, when they're young, they just naturally live like a girl. They're going to have long hair. Men, they're going to have short hair. You, know, you don't grow hair like a woman. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 11. Uh, there's a reality to the world as to why women just naturally have long flowing hair. She's the, her hair symbolizes that she's the grass on the ground. The grass on the ground is hair on the ground. God, it's a glory covering on the ground. When God brings the woman to the man, there's a glory covering over this dirtbag man. 
over the dirt, okay, over Adam. Also, the symbol of this is masculine voice. A man can be loud, deep voice like this, and he has a deeper voice. A woman has a higher pitched voice, and this is it. And, you know, he talks, she talks, I can't even do it, you know. Only, only a woman really is gifted with that high-pitched voice. And when you hear a feminine man or a, a homosexual or something like that trying to talk with a high-pitched voice, you know, it's just, you're like, man, you, you sound strange, man. And a lot of this, all the voice pitch is uh, environmental. What I mean is you, you copy voice, you listen to voice. English is environmental. You, you learn how to speak through your through your, you know, your environment. Um, your parents handed it down to you. And so um, that's all symbol, symbols here, okay, of, of the balance of, of strength and sensitivity. Now, let me get to, I think y'all are with me, let me get to some real practical and real, I would say, personal applications of all this. Number one, and go to the, the, the second page of your handout, and that is... Um, Jesus said that in the book of Acts, they quote Jesus, it's more blessed to do what? Give than to receive. Now think about this. Why? I'll tell you a little quick story. An old man told me, he was about 80 years old, and he had money you know, later in his life. I didn't know this when I was younger, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, that's a true story. He told me this. It is, I'm happier giving. I love giving. Man, it makes me happy. He's an old man doing this. And he said, that's why Jesus says more blessed is you than receive. And blessedness is another word for happiness in a lot of contexts. The giver is always happier than the receiver. The giver is always going to appreciate more ways given than the receiver. Why? It's sacrifice for it. How many men have ever had to study? to work, had to sweat, to do everything you do to bring it home. <laughs> You're like, and you, you, you win the deal, you make the trade, you hit the home run, you know, you make that investment. You're like, yeah, man, awesome. And you call your guys and you're like, man, I conquered the world in that one, man. And, you know, so, so I'm getting, setting you up for what's called, what's, what I would call the challenge of masculinity, but we're going to get to that later. But let me stop right there. This is why God is the happiest of all. He's giving, 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 and the Trinity is giving to one another. Giving each person is giving to one another, and it just this love circle just keeps going on. Now, whenever we now, let me say this: a woman is a giver. She's laboring to give birth, and um, you know she goes through the birth pains, and we receive men receive fatherhood. We receive a baby, you know, and we're like, yeah. And you tell your wife, say, yeah, I know what it's like to be pregnant, and I know the pain of childbirth. And she's like, shut up. Oh my God. You know? And she can appreciate the gift of a child so much more than you. Because she went through the hell and the pain of childbirth. She paid the price. She worked for it in that sense. Birthed it, and she had blood and everything. And, and she can really appreciate the gift more than receiver. Now, this sets you up from a male perspective, from a male perspective, since y'all are all guys, of, of a challenge, what I want to call the, um, 
the challenge for men. Turn to page five, the challenges for men. And here's the challenge for men is that whatever you do in life, whatever you give in life, to a large extent, you are going to appreciate it more than she will. Uh, she, if, if she is a receiver, a responder, your efforts and everything like this, you're going to appreciate it to a, a greater degree than she is. Because the law of God and nature is, it's always more blessed to give than to receive. And here's where the challenge in a sinful world, this stuff comes in, in marriages, is, let me give you an example. The, the, uh, you ever seen the Geico commercial? The Geico commercial is you have these crazy, stupid people doing things, and you just expect them to do what they do. So, you know, it's obvious. You just expect that to happen. So when you buy Geico uh, car insurance or whatever, uh, you save money. It's, it's what you do. It's what you do. You, you don't have to appreciate it. It's just what you expect. It's the Geico commercial. It's what you do. So when a man gives... A lot of times the feminine is thinking, it's a man. It's what he does. You're in the Geico commercial. Okay? And you go out there and work, and you sweat, and you do all this, and you're like, yes, I did all this. And you think, and you might expect your wife's appreciation level to equal yours. And, uh, and, she's, and she says, oh, Okay, that's fine. Good. I'm, I'm glad it worked out. You know, or she just, and you're trying to get her to appreciate it. Uh, she can never grow her appreciation level for the things that she expects you to do, that you're supposed to do, because um, you're in the Geico commercial. Same thing with her. On the flip side, you walk in, and sometimes it's, well, you're a woman. It's what you do. That's kind of, as much as you say you appreciate it, like, you know, she may clean the kitchen and everything that she worked hard for. And she appreciates it so much. And you do say, sweetheart, it looks beautiful. I love it. That's great. I'm glad you cleaned the kitchen. I thank you for supper. That's awesome, you know. And you're saying thank you. Um, the thing is, yeah, you, you may appreciate it to a certain extent, but who worked for it? Who gave it? Who initiated it? You see, she blood, sacrificed, and did all this. And, <laughs> and you're always trying to say, yes, I do appreciate it, baby. I know, you know. So, Y'all with me on this? You understand? Okay. So the challenge is, is that one challenge for men is, and this is, this is one reason why she may, you may do all this and do all this, and she may say, you know what? There's more to do. Hey, I finished my job. And she comes in and says, well, you're a man. It's what you do. And look, the road keeps going. How many of you have ever done something Worked at the house, did your job, and she kind of expected some more. She's the she's the finality. She is the the end time. She's she's she has eschatology. She's reminding you that you never made it. She's reminding you that you know what you, you haven't arrived yet. Um, <clears throat> that's that's deeply wired in her femininity, um, and it's frustrating for a man to be like, man, all this work accomplished, and Either she doesn't appreciate it as much as I do, or she's like, man, she's always pointing more to do. You know, it's, are you ever satisfied? You know, and, and there's this, there's, could, there can be this dynamic of that. 
But I think it's helpful to, to, to filter, to explain this with the archetypes of time and, and why it functions that way. Um, she's always expecting you, number two, to arrive mentally, to arrive emotionally, meaning this. She expects you to just get it. Just get it. You ever heard that phrase? Okay. What I mean by that is this. Women have intuition. Women are thinking things. Women are feeling things. And she expects you to arrive all the time where she is, mentally, emotionally, and that you understand her. And she hates to explain to you what you should already know in her mind. You don't know that I feel this way? You should know. You know and, she's tr and if she has to bring you from point A to point Z, and she has to lead you all the way there, it's so frustrating for her. Because what does she have to do then? She has to start initiating. She has to start doing all this stuff. And she has to play the masculine role for you. And if a woman is married to a man who can't get it mentally or emotionally, and she all, she's just wishing that he would arrive in the garden. Because he all, he's always out the, outside the garden, wherever he is, and he doesn't get it. You know, <laughs> that, that is a lot of where I would say that she wants, she's asking, she's expecting you, because you know what? You're a man. It's what you do. You start out there, and you should arrive here. She expects you to, to get it. There's a good article on, in rationalmail.com called Just Get It. And it's this picture of this woman who is just looking at this man like, with her silent and angry face, and the man's just like staring straight. And you can tell that she realizes he doesn't get it, you know. And she, anyway, so the challenge of masculinity, and a lot of it is to, is to arrive and meet her where she is um, without her telling you. And that's where the strength of social awareness, the strength of reading her, uh, and then if, if you arrive, then what does she do? She responds. He understands me. So that's that emotional arrival. I call it the, the mental and emotional finish line. You know, you're over here doing your thing, but every day she expects you to live at the finish line of her emotional being in, in, in the garden. Um, also, you need to, a man, here's a challenge for man. Uh, you know, the difference in, she says, I want this, 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 you know. And you're like, hmm. You know, okay, if you, if you only do what she wants, and 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 you're thinking, and then she gets like, you may think, no matter what I do, she, she's not happy, she's not, she's not, you know, I'm only doing what she wants. Yeah, because you're an idiot. Uh, she, you need to give her what she needs and what she wants. Okay? And if you want to go from here to there with her, what she needs, you got to originate. You have to initiate. You have to be strong enough and wise enough to know this is what she needs, and I need to initiate it. If you go to the woman and say, uh, what do you need? She will always lie to you. She can't tell you the truth. Uh, she, she is going to say what she wants. She lives in the bubble of finality right here. She can't initiate a need for herself. That comes from you. You're a man. It's what you do. Geico commercial. She lives in the Geico commercial. You get me? You have to say, you know what? This is what she needs. I need to initiate that future to her. I need to give that to her and bring her to that point and, and move her to that direction. I need to take the initiative. 
Um, and this is where she will be very, very frustrated if, if the man doesn't, doesn't break through and come through and, and rescue her with, oh, he gave me what I needed. Now you think about the sliding scale of, where, of how that fits from an 18-year-old girl to an 80-year-old girl. Uh, she's always going to be, want to be with a man who, in the end, is vindicated for giving her what, what she needed. Okay? And that's the challenge for a man. Um, so here, at the bottom part of page five, I would say this. I'm going to read this to you. Number, uh, it's a, the, th- the two stars. She is the future. Number one, she, she expects to respond to your work, hopefully with glory and joy. She expects you to always arrive mentally and emotionally. She wants you to get it. She expects you to initiate her need, not just what she wants. Why? Because you're a man. It's what you do. Geico commercial. The future can be very painful to live with. Number one, if you expect her to always initiate, if you expect her to live in this category, this is on always, it's going to be very painful to live in the future. Um, if you expect her to explain to you what you should already know in her eyes, it's going to be very painful to live in the future. If, if you only give her what she wants, not what she needs, she's going to get very angry because she's not responding to what? A man. She's responding to a child. If you don't break through and give her what she really needs in addition to what she wants sometimes, then she's going to see so sick of the fact that I'm, I'm married to a child who, who, who can't get off square one and arrive and break through and, and make it happen and give me what I need. I'm at the finish line. I need to arrive mentally, emotionally, physically, and uh, in the spectrum of time. I need, I need him to become because I am over here at the being of the future, you know, and I need him to get here. Uh, so that's why she has this intuition. For example, we like to do one plus one plus one plus one plus one, and we add it all up. Like, yeah, we got all the stuff together. The the woman she skips over all that and says, "I've already, I've, I've, I added it all up. Where are you? you know, I see the conclusion. You don't get it. You don't get it. You know. So that's that's how she functions. She's in the future. Here's let me give you. Okay, that's kind of, this is kind of like the challenge. Let me give you a, a way in which on the architect of time, a solution or a helpful tool you can use. And this, I got this word from a guy, uh, I don't think he developed this word, but he made it popular, I think. His name is Rolo Tomasi, and he used the word amused mastery. It's in your handout. Amused mastery. Let me give you an illustration. If you are, have a five-year-old little kid, and the kid comes down and wants to tie your shoe, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're so such a master of the shoe tying work. It is really amusing to look down at your child tying the shoe because you, you know the nature of tying the shoe. You know how it works, how it functions. And so when it works, when it plays out, you're going to be like, that's pretty, this is amusing to see, to see it work and play out. Look, at she, she's tying my shoe. And, uh, well, the same thing whenever you look at a feminine nature Especially on this perspective of time. When you see it play out, it, it can be very, if you just simply say, you know what, she's bringing in the future, and she's pointing to me, more work that needs to be done. 
She can't appreciate it as much as I do, all the work that I've done. It's pretty amusing to see the feminine come in here and point me to the future. It's pretty amusing to see how the feminine expects me to read her mind. It's pretty amusing for me to look at this and in my conversation with this wife, she can't figure out what she needs and I'm gonna to listen to her and talk to her and help her point to where she needs. You need to first be humored, humored, amused by the feminine nature. And why I say that is because if you're amused first by it, then you will not be angered by it first. But heaven help you if you show it. Exactly. Because this is like a, your, your amusement, your personal amusement, is like a self-defensive category here where, you know, you're watching her tie your shoe, so to speak. You know, you're, you're watching her go through her routine. You know how she's going to work you, you could, because you have mastered what she's going to do. And because you, you know that when you come home that your appreciation level is going to be higher than hers. You know that she's going to, you know, be wanting to respond to what you do and everything. And so before you get angry at her and try to argue her into, you know, more appreciation, girl, uh, you know, something like that, then uh, use a, a muse mastery. Okay, here's another application of this. It increases your patience. Uh, men tend to get angry if a woman lacks appreciation. Before you get angry, you should get, you should get amused. Okay, it'll help you grin and smile first when you're talking to a girl and, or your, your, your wife and you're just gonna have to get through it and watch it work it out. All right, it's, this is also this. This will help you focus on yourself. You don't wanna focus on and judging her appreciation level or not. That's just really, uh, don't even worry about that. Uh, because this, you know what she really wants? She really wants to be just attracted to you. She really wants to respond with, I love that guy. I, I, I need that guy. He, he calms me. He secures me. She just wants to respond with, with that. And yes, there's a level of appreciation. But if you are going to sit here and, and um, try to require that, or you know, if you try to earn or require her appreciation, it's going to turn her off. If you make yourself more mature, if you make yourself more attractive, if you make yourself have all these gifts that we talked about, strength levels of, of intelligence, strength levels of physical strength, strength levels, all these strengths, if you try to just prove that for that sake alone, to make yourself a better man, then she's going to respond more saying, man, look at that guy I'm with. He is just becoming, becoming, becoming more like God. Okay, this is Genesis chapter 2. We want to make man like God. Right? So don't, uh, this helps you focus on yourself, not really on her response. And lastly, I would say this too. This, if you do what I'm telling you, you're going to eventually, most likely, keep her desire for you. What do I mean by that? Number one, you cannot pay a woman to love you. You cannot pay a woman to say, I desire you. I want to I love you like the Song of Solomon. You can, Money cannot buy that. And what, what, so sometimes men will try to earn, okay, her, her love and desire by, hey, look, I've done all this. Uh, won't you respond with your desire? And you think I'm writing a check and I'm going to give it to you. And uh, don't you appreciate it? And you're going to pay for her, you know, glorious, awesome 
physical response and everything like this, and it may not, it may not show up. It, the thing is, you can't do it that way. It doesn't work that way. You know why? Because she doesn't want her desire to be forced. She doesn't want her desire. She wants her desire. She really wants her desire to be freely given. Um, if she's going to respond to a man, it's got to be free. Uh, it's got to be for, for no reason, no coercion. Um, you just simply pursue your work. You improve your skills. You make more money. You mature in all areas. And she's like, I got a good man. And, and he's doing this because he's a good man. He's not doing this because of me, so to speak. Because if it's ever because of me, you know what it is? She's trying to force me to respond. If it's because of me, he's kind of like blaming me for everything that's going, going wrong. I mean, in the back of your mind, yeah, you want the benefits of your wife. You want her glory. But if, if she is the only reason you're doing this and you're orbiting around her, it's because of me. It's implicitly you're trying to, to force her or buy her aff- affection, buy her desire. But if you're just like growing yourself more and more and more and more and you're becoming, becoming, and you're growing all in all these levels, um, she is going to start going, oh my goodness, I'm responding to the image of God. You know, a man who is growing more and more in the image of God. So uh, I think this is where, though there's a challenge with the future, on the axis of time, uh, you can use it to your advantage with amused mastery, because you know how it's going to work. You're not going to change it. That's how she's wired. And just uh, and and then uh, you can um, improve. You can use it to your skill to improve yourself. Focus on yourself. And I'm going to say this. As a, we're going to pause right now and get to the next lecture soon. But I'm going to give you a question. If the woman is in the, in the end of time and she's always at the finality, how can she ever be happy? If she's always expecting more, in a sense, and, you know, and, then what's going to really keep her in check? Because if she has this greater glory of, of femininity the final, coming into history, then, you know, it's, how is the feminine ever going to be satisfied? And the answer is in the vertical axis. And I'll talk about that in the next session. I'll pause right now to answer any questions. Jonathan. Where, where do you find the balance with, uh, I get what you're saying, working for yourself, maturing, growing, growing grace, growing Christ? Uh, how does Popular manifestation of that is yeah. That, popular, you know, I need some me time. Focus on focus on you and uh, um, number one. There's a balance. Okay, if something gets out of balance, then it's going to the ship is going to tilt. Um, and then number two, the vertical axis is really going to explain this because right now, right now in this time axis, the focus really is on trying to initiate toward her and give her something and reward her or something. So this is kind of the focus is on her already on the time axis. Because you gotta, you gotta she's waiting to respond to what you've done. The vertical axis is going to focus on the self. 
of the man who's the sun in the solar system, the authority. I want to get to that very soon. Um, but uh, let me go ahead and say this. that uh, maybe I, I forgot what I was going to say. I'll, I'll remember and come back. Any other questions? I just uh, kind of comment that the degree rich uh, husbands, young husbands particularly, can recognize these fundamental differences in the emotional construction of women. Yeah. Is the degree to which they become uh, satisfied and happy in their marriages because I, it would cut off. And I, it's uh, something that experience teaches you, but if you've been married for 30 years, there's a level of partnership in a marriage. Uh, and that's not a magic time. I mean, it could be 10 years if you're mature, but it could be 50 years if you're not mature. But at some point, women and men learn that dance. Over, yeah. over, over, but, it's, but it's a lot of frustration early on as men start to recognize, as you pointed out, that we're built differently. Yeah. And um, women respond very differently from what men think they, from how men think they should respond. And, yes. uh, and it, it's years of frustration if a man doesn't grow up and learn uh, and become mature and wise about how to court a woman and, and, or how to, you know, how to uh, yeah. give her what she needs. But that's why I guess we see these older, older people in marriages where, um, and perhaps it's because it's no longer about the sex as much. Mm -hmm. It's more about companionship. And there's something really beautiful about older couples and they don't even want to literally live after the other one passes away because yeah. there's this beautiful partnership. They glue themselves so yes. close yeah. together. They but it's not that way in young marriages often, not very much. I mean, there's a lot of passion, but. That's why I think it's very helpful for young men Try to have this type of paradigm and realize your, what the, the nature of, of the female being the feminine, being the eschatological, being the future, and, and she's waiting on you always to arrive. Any other questions? Um, okay, we'll dismiss for a few minutes and get to the next uh, lecture soon. Is everybody here? Okay. Um, Y'all, I have the handout on this next uh, discussion is pages 7, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, this might be the most substantial one as far as content, so um, I hope I get through it all. Let me begin with the question I was thinking about earlier and show you the paradigm we're working with. <clears throat> Here's a good question to ask. It's at the top of your handout. You know, if, if, a, if a woman is always, quote, the finish line, Okay, how can she be happy? If a woman is always expecting you to arrive, you know, mentally, financially, emotionally, you know, make it to the finish line and keep going, because anytime you, you, you reach the finish line, guess what it is? It's your new starting line. In a woman worldview, wherever you end up, you're still outside the garden. I mean, it's like a rat in a rat's race. That's kind of basically her expectation. Okay, if she's wired toward the future, what makes her happy in the present tense? So on this, on this paradigm here, uh, you're working, and Jonathan, this kind of an answered your question earlier. On this pair, on the horizontal axis, you're actually initiating and working and doing all these things, and, you know, in the sense that she's the beneficiary right there, okay? And so, and she's the inspector general, she's the judge, she's the jury, whether she likes it or not, or approves it or not, all these things. And so on the, on the axis of time, she has a greater glory, because she's the finality. 
She's the finesse and all these things, the sensitive judge and jury of it all. Where on the axis of the vertical axis, this is where her joy comes from. This is where, you know, the, she can, she is actually satisfied if she has a good vertical axis in her life in this sense. Because he has a greater glory on the vertical axis. And this is part of the matrix of creation with the sun and the moon. They were the rulers and the border of heaven because this is uh, outer space is a barrier. It's a border. So you can't see the highest heavens. And those rulers are ruling over their kingdom, the world. Those rulers are, you know, shining their light. But this is a greater light that's a lesser light. And the sun represents the man, and the man represents the sun. The woman represents the moon, and the moon represents the woman. Okay. Now let me justify this a little bit more. This is not me or, or somebody putting, you know, um, illustrations out from creation. It's in the Bible. Let me justify this and explain it to you this way. In the days of creation, you have this structure where they square up like this. On the second day of creation, there was that barrier that was put in. And then on the fourth day, God put those ruling stars in the barrier. On the sixth day of creation, there's a barrier on earth called the Garden of Eden. We talked about that in the first lecture. And this chiastic structure points out what God's doing. What he does in heaven, when he fills the starry heavens, He's going, what he does in the heavens, he's going to replicate on the earth. He puts his rulers in the sky in that position. He's going to put his rulers on earth in that position, in that barrier. That's one way to defend what I'm saying. Because I'm trying to scratch your itch of saying, well, where did you get that, Pastor Eric? Where is that in the Bible? You know, you are good Bereans. You want to know where the Bible gets everything. Another, another place in the Bible to get this point, this method, this illustration and defend the matrix here is uh, Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. You can look at it later. This is where Joseph says, Hey, I looked at the constellations. There's 12 constellations. That's what the stars are there. And y'all are all bowing down to me, including the sun and the moon. And then Joseph's father and his mother say, What? We're bowing down to you? Even you know, me and daddy and I? And they understand that the father is Joseph because of his relationship to the son. And then... Rachel, his mother, is the moon. She's bowing down to Joseph. So, in the ancient world, there's that symbolism. That now, so what you, what you, when you start chewing on this, the beauty of this, you start seeing, like, yeah, this is really, really real. Because think of the masculine nature of the sun and the feminine nature of the moon. Here's a list I'm going to go over with you. Number one, the, the moon has a greater, stronger light, obviously. The moon, the, the, the sun, the sun uh, rules with its strength. He shines work in the daytime so you can get to work. He's like a father directing you out in your bed, get to work out there in the yard and stuff. Um, the light of strength and provision. He, he, he is providing like a father uh, in the sense of providing for the world. Okay, There's authority to him, the sun. You think about this. You cannot go up and stare at the sun. Where's the, the sun? His massive authority forces you to kind of walk with reverence outside with your head down. You don't ever look directly at that, at that sun. He has so much authority. Um, 
Also, the sun, you think about this, fertility, symbolism. The sun is always shining. The sun is always ready. There's no phases to the sun. Um, a woman, in her fertility cycle, she goes through phases. Just like the, the moon will go through phases and shades. She's, there's a time in the month where she can, she's in ovulation and she's easier to uh, give birth and conceive and give birth to a baby. The moon has a full moon and also a new moon. Okay, So there's this correlation there, even in creation. The, the moon has a lesser light. It's weaker. It's more sensitive. The moon's light is, is sensitive. It's nurturing. It's for comfort. It's for care, like nighttime. There's a delicacy to it. There's a gentleness to it. And also, what you can do to the moon, you can look up and go, wow, she's pretty. <laughs> you can stare and gaze at the moon. Um, every wife loves for her husband to say, wow, baby, you're sweet. You're pretty. I love you. Gaze at her. That's the, you know, you, you, so we're using this, but, you know, like that, because when you realize that God's setting up things in the matrix of creation, you can utilize this in a, in a helpful way, and it actually explains um, some uh, roles of man and, and women. So, <clears throat> let me keep going with my notes here. Let's go to the next page. Here's what I made the matrix yesterday, showing that the more that the man and the woman do their duties of sensitive glory, ruling, helping rule in the house with her delicacy, with her sensitivity. And here, I need to make sure y'all understand this. On day four, the month, the sun rules and the moon rules. The word rule is used for both of those. But one has a greater light, one has a lesser light. And so the sensitivity is glory, and he has to have his, his sunlight. So let me, that's pretty clear. Let me get to the applications. And how does, how does this apply to man and your man in your role, in your authority in the house, um, the heavenly hierarchy, and how is this going to actually satisfy her and all this? Number one, see, this is kind of a focus on her, the horizontal axis. Vertical axis is going to be maybe a focus on you and your role and your position. Number one, I would say this, increase, this means increasing, increase your sunlight. Increase, that means increasing your value and your strength is the primary way that you can have a happy marriage with the future. She needs, she needs a man of strength and she needs a man of value. And you think of all those categories looked at later, of this category, that category, that category, that category of strength. Uh, she's weaker, she has a lesser light. But if she is with a sunlight that is massive and is illuminating her world that she's helping to, to care at nighttime, then she's happy. That is what's going to bring satisfaction to Mrs. Future, uh, is the authority that comes from heaven, you know, symbolized in, in your role as, as the, the man of the house. Uh, here's a couple of notes here. I'm going to read this to you. Uh, the stronger you are in all areas of your life, the more your wife will look up to you. The brighter, more valuable you are in her eyes, the more value she feels about herself. This is extremely important. Here is the sun, okay, and here's the moon, say lesser. One's greater, one's lesser. She has to, for her to be happy, she has to be in a position where she is always looking up to the sunlight. 
if she is ever in a position where her moon is up here, whatever it is, it's symbolized by that, and she is actually looking down on that because he is so dim, she will actually hate you, she will devour you, she will do everything she can, because, and she'll blame it on you. And she'll divorce you and take everything you got. This is, this is where it gets to hell. I'm, I'm just saying that that's how, that's how it all goes down. And, and it'll be your fault in her eyes because you were not up there. Why? Because you're a man. It's what you do. Geico commercial. All right? And so she, the only way she can be happy and satisfied and content is if there's a greater light in her life <clears throat> that is illuminating her world and, and she derives value and and personal feeling of confidence from that greater from that greater light. Um, here's a couple notes. It's impossible for a woman to love, much less desire, weakness in any form. That's serious. She's already a weaker vessel, and if somebody comes in weaker than her, it is repulsive to her. Okay. The only thing that's going to pull attract her is someone above her and, and desires. Now, this is where a guy named Rolo Tomasi made, made one word very popular in certain circles, but he did good and, made, and given it a name. And the name he uses is hypergamy, which means, hyper means high, gammy meaning marriage. A woman has to marry higher. A woman has to marry someone Stronger, higher, she looks up to in some sense in her eyes. This is why, naturally speaking, most men are higher, are taller than, than women because she wants to physically even look up. But if, she, if she's taller, if you have a, a wife that's taller than you, she's actually looking up to you in some form or fashion. She respects you. If she loves you, she respects you. She looks up to you because you're intelligent, you're strong, you're smart, um, you're ambitious, you're going places, you've done something. Look at that man that I'm with. And this is why one of the best ways and the first ways you can ever love your wife is make your sunlight as strong as possible in all areas. And um, because she needs to, and I, and I know this, that, that this, this is not science in the sense that we're just looking at how the lights function. The Bible's looking at the function of the lights and what they're doing. We know scientifically that, yeah, that the... Um, Everything is circular and they revolve around the moon scientifically. But let me go ahead and use a scientific metaphor. You have to be the sunlight in her solar system. In her romantic and emotional solar system, there has to be gravity that, that is coming from you that is pulling her and saying, and she is like, I am with the sunlight. I am with the man in my life. I am now happy. Because she has all this anxiety down here, when, you know, time is moving on to a greater glory. But when she has a greater glory of, of the sunlight, then that romantic and emotional solar system that she is in has gravity, and she is now being served by him who is dominant. This is why a woman will never tell you, I want you to be dominant. Why? Because she wants you to get it. She wants you just to be dominant, become dominant, become this man who creates a world that for her to be involved in. And therefore, then she is, she is happy to be with that strong man. 
Okay, now as, as you well know, where do you get your ultimate strength? It's from God, it's from Jesus Christ, the foundation is spiritual and all these things. But this stuff is to radiate physically, emotionally, financially, vocationally, all the national leads you can add to the, to, to the equation. Um, so keep going on with these notes here. There's a point. Remember I said that she will blame you and hate you if you're not doing what you ought to do because you're a man, that's what you're supposed to do. There's a quote from John Milton, and I don't, I don't have it with me, but let me quote for you. In Paradise Lost, John Milton, he has this conversation with Eve and Adam, and she's blaming him for all this fall because he, you know, stuff. And John Milton says this, Thus it shall befall him, who to worth in women, over-trusting, lets her will rule. For restraint she will not brook or tolerate. And let to herself, if evil then thus ensue, she first, his weak indulgence, will accuse. The poetry means this, is that he let the sunlight down, um, and she, got, she would get so mad and blame him for doing it. And she let, he let her do it, you know, in, in John Milton's mind, you know, in his commentary. He let her do it, and then now she's blaming him for letting her do it. She's going to blame his weakness for her fault, for her, for that. So welcome to the world of marriage. So um, here's another thing, too, on the spectrum of a woman's life. A woman's desire, she will desire earlier in her life a male seed, and later in her life a male sustenance. This is why at an earlier stage in life, a woman at 20 years old, she is going to be romantically attracted, she's going to be sexually attracted to the dominant man, the, the man who she's physically attracted to. Later in her life, when she's 50 years old, she's going to be attracted to the man who's going to provide for me. Who, I, I'm concerned about my caretaking, my, you know, all these things that, that her hypergamy, or hypergamy, however you want to call it, uh, it's she, this has got to be satisfied. Her desire to, to marry up Okay, and have that, that dominance over her. And this is a dominance that is attractive. It's a dominance that is desirable. This is not something you can force feed or force and, and be a jerk about it. I'm the man. No, no, no. If you can't, and some people use it, if you don't have the game to angle in and help him so that she responds with a willful, hey, I'm going to open up to you, my heart, my soul, and my body. Uh, I'll open up to that. If you can't do it in a way that's convincing, persuasive, attractive, romantic, and angle in, then you're not the man. That, that you haven't, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't get it. So, so that's, that's the, the dominance that we're talking about. This is not a dominating tyranny thing. It is a, it's a way that God attracts the church. You know, he's the man. He is the Jesus. He died for my sins. And so Jesus does it in forces. We all come to believe in Jesus because we want to. Because the Spirit of God enables us and gives us that ability to say, yeah, I love Jesus. And uh, so none of us ever say, you know, we were, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know we're not, we do it out of our own will because God gave us a new will. I'm not an Armenian. I'm just telling you how it works. Okay, don't crucify me. Uh, okay, so, okay, fill up page nine. Here's where we're going to get to you, help you on some solutions. Here's a question. The woman's going to ask forever, for the rest of her life, 
she's always going to wonder, how bright is that sun? Uh, is he really above me? Can I trust him? And what she's going to do, every, from the day she wakes up to the day she sleeps in the morning, and every conversation that you have with her, she is always going to be testing you. You're never going to be out of the testing phase. And so what I mean by that is this. She's going to talk to you, and she's going to lean on you somehow. Um, she is always going to depend. She's going to challenge. She's going to question. Uh, she's going to say, you know how? Are you, are you sure about that? And she's going to lean on you. And, and, and you have to understand that's how she's going to respond and act because she wants to find, oh, I got strength. I got, I got the strength from him. She has a sensitivity. She has to have the strength from you. So you think about this. If you to notes as well. If she ever fights or argues or yells, um, it's, it's always and usually an expression of some fear of a lack of strength or some fear of a lack of trust or a lack of something that's not the sun and her solar system is not providing. And so she's fearful about something and so she comes up there and she's really wanting you to come up there with strength to, to, to calm the situation. The de- here's the thing, the degree, of sh- uh, the degree to which she trusts and has confidence in her man is the degree to which she will be peaceful and happy. That's where I'm getting at. We see this axis of time where it seems like she's not happy. It seems like she's not, you know, never satisfied. Well, she comes up here and tests the moonlight, tests the moonlight, and he, he comes in with his romantic dominance, his trustworthiness, his wisdom, his skill, he says, calm down. Don't worry. It's going to be all right. I promise you. And then she's like, oh, okay. Because he knows, he gets it. He knows what to do. He knows how to angle in on what she needs. And he's proven that over and over again. She's tested that. And the more tests that he passes, then the tests get simpler and simpler. And she stops questioning. But if you fail a test and you fail a test, and she's like, I sense... I, I, all I see is weakness. All I see is weakness. Then, then she's going to get. She's going to hurt. All of her anger, all of her anxiety, is, ne- is nothing more than a cry for strength. That's all she's looking for, really. And it reminds me of Presbytery. I'm on the examining committee of Presbytery. We, we're like the uh, the girl, I guess. You know, we're testing the guy out and we're asking the questions. And he's like, uh, if he's like uh, ju- justification by faith. Um, I, I think it means, um, and dude, if somebody says, can't answer that question, the whole president jumps on him like a woman, and it's like, what? You tell me that, and, and all the questions are coming down, you know, because <laughs> we're, we're feminine in that equation there, in the sense that we're responding, and he's failing the test, and we got anxiety. Uh, that's exactly what a female does in a, in a microscopic level, when he can answer the question. Uh, rightly pass the test and get it and you know, scratch all those itches and all of that stuff, then she's calm. She's happy. Alright, this is going to be helpful. Let me give you some tools, okay? If you got a problem, you know, this, uh, in, in, or a socket wrench, you've got a toolbox, you've got to find the right tool. You tell you, you got you to first do this, you have to name the tool. The reason why this is important is because one of the greatest powers that you will have in the sunlight in your life is to name something. What I mean by this is this, this. She comes up to you, the moon comes up to you with, with, a, with a situation, with a character trait, 
with an attitude, with a complaint, or with a concern, or what you name it. That's what I get at this point, name it. If you can't name it, of what she's doing right there in that moment, then you've lost control. You're going to be like, what? You know, you're going to do the knee-jerk reaction. But if she comes up to you and you instinctively realize, oh, you know what this is? This is a comfort test. She needs comfort. And you, you, and you can do this intuitively. Okay. If she comes up to you and, and she's stressed out, it's a stress test. Stress test. She's got stress. She's looking for her stress to be neutralized. Um, I call this the all right test. Every morning we're about, we're about to go through this. Sweetheart, is it going to be all right today? We've got to do this. We've got to do this. Sweetheart, absolutely. It's going to be all right. Okay. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Or maybe I'm the only one. But, but that's the all right test. And, and listen, and I, don't care, I don't care how bad it's, it is or what it's gonna, how bad you feel. She doesn't really care how bad you feel. Because um, she wants to feel good, okay? And you've got to come in there, even, even if you have to lie. And you have to say, hey, it's going to be all right. And after you lie, you go back and read Romans 8, 28, and you realize, oh, I didn't lie. It is going to be all right. Because that's what God, God promised, okay? Being facetious here, all right? Because I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I was I was on my honeymoon with my wife. I was about to lose my job, and um, not lose it, but I was I was I put in my resignation. Where I was going to go find another, be another pastor somewhere because it necessitated. I had to leave in six months or a year. And then she says this on her honeymoon. She says, um, "So what's going to happen after you lose your job?" I said, "You know." I know for a fact that it's going to be fine. I know for a fact it's all going to work out. And I'm, I'm totally confident with it. And she, and here I was, trembling inside, thinking, what in the world? I said, oh my goodness, you know, all that anxiety. But I knew if I shared that anxiety with her, it would kill her. It would just, she would think, who the heck did I just marry? I didn't marry a man. I married a child who can't make it work. But I had to move forward in faith. And sometimes in your, in your mind, you're thinking, this is a lie. But no, it's the faith that the future is going to be better. And, um, and that, that's the, I, I remember that for, for my, all the years of my marriage right now, because how many times have I had to come in there and say, don't you dare worry, this is going to work out, I promise you. And then, by the grace of God, things work out. You know, y'all have all had hard times, I've had hard times, but you, it's, that's, that's what she, she's testing you. Um, and this is, this is where the name helps. When you can identify the test. And let me say this. Doctors, the job of doctors is to name something. They name it, and then they come, come bring a prescription. They name uh, uh, a, a behavior. Like, you know, I don't know if you name the, the term bipolar uh, or manic depressant. There's all these names that psych psychologists are observing creation and saying, oh, here's a name, here's a name. They're like Adam. Naming things in the garden. And the reason why they're naming it is so they can find another name, a prescription, and apply it, apply to it. But if you're a, a nameless man and you go into a marriage and you can't name this, 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 all, all that your wife is doing, how she's reacting, then you can't pull your toolbox out and say, this, is, this works there, this angle in there, the screwdriver works here. And so one name, another name, I want to give you, that it came from... And again, this guy, Rolo Tomasi, made it very famous, is the name Fran. And Fran is what I, what I would call, uh, it's an attractive dominance, and it is 
its frame is this you can say your reality meaning this that whatever you do whatever you create it has framed her and she is within the frame of this dominant man who loves me cares for me I can depend on him and there's there's that, that's what frame is mean. It's kind of like the picture, it comes from a picture frame, where the picture frame is this, and the woman is on display, and she is fit right within the frame, and she's happy to be in the man's, in the man's world that he is providing, the sunlight that he is, and, and, and she is orbiting around his frame, you can say that, in that way. And so these, these people, you know, if, a, if a woman goes off and sleeps with another man, goes off and divorces or whatever like this, uh, that man lost frame. Uh, that man uh, couldn't maintain her desire, or whatever, she, whatever it was. She she said, "This is not a reality that I want. I, I need to escape." And you know, it could be sinful and all this stuff. But either way, bottom line is he lost frame. And so, if your frame is going to be tested, positive or negative, and, and all these other things, and. Uh, you want to, the goal is to maintain the frame. Uh, to be sunlight in her solar system. That's what keeps me, keep moving on. And I'll say this, this is one reason why feminism will always produce, and only produce, unhappy women. Uh, here's another application of this. Feminism thinks that the moonlight can become the, star, the sunlight. Feminism is trying to put the burden of responsibility on the female and that's and, and say basically to replace the sun, to kill the sun, put the sun out, and now we got women ruling over everything. So and that's why whenever you meet a feminist, you're never going to meet a very, very happy, joyful, you know, glorious feminist. Um, she's going to cut her hair, you know, like a like a man or something. She's going to be a, she's going to be angry like a man. And all these things because she's designed primarily to be the glorifier, the receptor, the receiver. And, um, and so this is really helpful, helpful explaining the, the tragedy of feminism. Now, let me give you some strategies right now to maintain frame. Just like the Western Confession of Faith, whenever you do, there's encouragements for obeying the Ten Commandments, and there's disencouragements. And so it's kind of like these boundaries, and a woman needs those boundaries. And here's the, here is the positive strategies for maintaining frame over a woman, giving her reality that she wants to flourish in. Number one, joy, humor, laughter, fun times, celebrations, activities, parties, gatherings, adventures, vacations, time for work and time for play. You have to create. That's what you've got to initiate. This is why you're going to work and you're providing for the family. You're, and and if, if she has this world of a family to live in and and all these positive things, then she's like, she's basically saying, I'm in the frame of, of this sunlight, it's great. I would, I would increase, I would add, if, if anything you do to improve yourself is going to improve your frame, the reality over her. So I would add good exercise and good diet to your doctrine of sanctification, okay? Um, all that is helpful for, for her answering the question, am I attracted to this guy? Um, all that's helpful for her encouraging her to say, hey, I like being in this man's frame, in his world. Um, did you need to increase? All of us, all of us, all of us need to increase levels of 
maturity in all areas. You, we're always in a place of becoming, okay? Learning and growing. And there's another, another, there's another term, I'm borrowing this from those guys, like the Rolo guy, he says, DHV, you need to demonstrate higher value. Demonstrate, speak well to your wife. Dress appropriately with her. You know, if you're always dressing sloppy, again, she's rendering that final verdict in your life. I hate your clothes, I hate the way you look, I hate the way you smell, whatever, you know. You think, oh, this is no big deal, I'm just, you know. But, no, you know, this is natural. You know, you gotta clean yourself off, you have to. Demonstrate high value as a man if you're going to attract the moonlight and you know, all that. Um, here's another thing, a very practical thing, and I think it's something that these guys have picked up on that I've studied a little bit, and this is helpful. Never say, never say to her and never say to others, man, I've I married up. I married up. Look who I married. The problem with that is, is, is when you say that, you're putting her way up here in the moonlight, and she is, she's basically saying, I married down. She doesn't like to marry down. It kills her hyperperbole. Better, it, it devalues her. Because if she married a down man, if she married someone to look, to look down upon, and, you, and she's way up there, all this glory, all that kind of stuff, on her heavily, heavily hierarchy, then, then it devalues her because it brings her at the chump I married. He's so down there. That's what it's psychologically saying. And these words, are, these words matter. And if you're married to a girl, your words matter. Better say this. You know, we, we both married well. It's, it's true. It's humble. And it keeps your status. We both married well. And we have a great thing going. You see, you, you, there's a way, there's a game in which you can angle in to um, keep her sunlight, your sunlight, Shining in her life. Here's some, so those are some, uh, I would say, some positive strategies of maintaining frame. Here's some corrective strategies. When I say corrective, let's say she, she starts doing things that, you know what, you don't do that. And how do you correct her with various strategies? Well, you need to have some tools in your weaponry as a husband. Number one, the first weaponry you need to remember is to never argue or fight with a woman because it doesn't ever go anywhere. What I mean by that is, if ever you raise your voice and you start yelling, you start screaming like that, then all of a sudden her, her sensitivities, boom, are triggered. And she is all about, she's not gonna hear your logic, she don't care about your logic, because it's how you said it. So you need to talk with her, don't yell at her, and don't scream at her, because all you're gonna do is spiral into to the hell of an of a, uh, emotional chaos, okay? Sometimes it's best to, you know what, just walk away. She says something, sometimes it's best to say, I'm just going to ignore her right now and get to it later. Sometimes you may say, sweetheart, we're going to talk about this later, not now. Because you know you're not strong enough emotionally, you're tired, and we'll talk about this in one hour, not now. It's a delay tactic. Uh, this is going to help you maintain frame because you're going to talk about this in your angle, and you're going to help her come to a conclusion, uh, the right one. Uh, sometimes you need to engage. Okay, let's talk about it. But you talk about the right tone, but you've got to have a self-awareness to know, is this the right time, place, and all this stuff to talk. Also, if you want to become most like God, I would say, is use humor. God laughs at his enemies in Psalm 2. Um, if you can 
hear her objections or she's doing something, she's challenging you, and <laughs> you just need to smile and say, baby, listen. If you can use humor, use grin, uh, use that, it's kind of a version of amuse mastery, you can show that, hey, I'm maintaining the frame here, and I'm not going to let your fit, your rage, you know, disturb my stability. And, and, and that's going to neutralize her and calm her down. Uh, a couple worst-case scenarios. If a, if a family, if it gets really, really bad, okay, I've heard a term people use called agree and amplify. Uh, if she says, oh, my goodness, you know, for example, you're such a jerk for, for doing what you think is right. Yeah, I'm a jerk, and I, I do what's right. You're right. You know, at, at the point is, is that sometimes it's helpful to nicely and diplomatically show that strength, show that you're not fearful of her. A weak man is fearful of her, but a strong man considers her opinion, takes it into account, calculates it, and can, can get in there and engage with her and say, I get it. Thank you so much. Now let me make a decision. But he's not fearful uh, of being handcuffed, handpecked, and neutered and castrated by the girl he's with because he knows he can step forward and he's, he's trained her to trust him. That's the, that's the challenge there. Um, so, and so agree and amplify could be a strategy sometimes in your toolbox. Number seven, there's two extremes I want to talk about right now. If you are a nice weakling, then you need some confidence to stand up to her. If you're a weak narcissist, then you need some humility to keep her. And here's two ditches I want to explain to you. There are two forms of weakness, and it's in, that, in your handout here. And the sunlight is in the middle. There's a weak ditch on the right side of your handout. There's the sinful weakness, a man who's too passive, uh, too sensitive. You know, he cries all the time. And when, even when he does something right, he says, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Okay, or whatever, you know. Um, he's not confident. He's not a stable-minded person, and he's all emotion. All right, that's a weak ditch over there that a woman will, will never be attracted to. Okay, and that's, that's one side. The other side of weakness is a counterfeit strength. A counterfeit strength is, is what? Anything that's counterfeit is not real. A counterfeit strength is, is Mr. Narcissist. He was all about himself, and he is like, yeah, I'm a man. You know, it's all going to be about me. This is going to answer your question, Jonathan, earlier. If he's over here on this ditch of a narcissist, he's insensitive. He don't care what she thinks and all this other stuff. He may have you know, won her and attracted her over a weekend or something like that. But then she's, she realizes she's married to a narcissist. She said, I'm divorcing this guy. I'm out of here. And what that is, though, it's a, it's a type of weakness because he can't say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it that way. You know, I'm right. I won't do that again. I apologize. Um, a strong man can admit that he's wrong. He's not going to take it personal that she's pointing it out. And if it's personal, he's going to He's going to stomach it, and he's going to say, okay, you're right. And she, she, he's respecting her greater glory, her finality, her judgment of, of him. And he's listening. He's listening. And he's, a strong man can handle sensitivity. A strong man can handle the sensitivity of the final judgment in his real life. Uh, a strong, a weak man says, I don't want to deal with sensitivity. A weak man says, I don't even want to think about what she thinks. I don't even want to consider what she's doing. I don't want to even want to think about her response. I'm just going to force it on her. I'm strong. Well, that's kind of like, you know, you think about this. That's like, like a type of rape. You know, we use the word rape for, um, you know, a man who put.
pushes himself physically on the woman. Well, a narcissist is, a, is like an emotional rape. He is going to force himself, you know, his way uh, emotionally on a woman, push it, and it's not going to be any romantic attraction or anything. And what it is is that counterfeit strength is actually a weak man on the inside. Uh, he's hollow. He's shallow. Uh, there's no substance. And she, and she will eventually see right through it and say, I don't have a man who gets it. I don't have a man who arrives at me emotionally. And uh, I, I need a man who just simply gets it. Whatever. So, so the strength zone there is in the middle. Um, but I think that this, this, this bracketing that I'm giving you helps you to maintain frame um, and the reality of that. I've spoken a lot. Any questions on all this? Any feedback that I can help you with? Um, but that's the power of naming and all that. Yes, sir? Oh, sure, absolutely. And also why a seeker-friendly church that brings down Christ's requirements is so wrong. Uh, yes, yes. Um, the seeker-friendly church is this, it's just, it's a feminine type of church. They're trying to attract the world with moonlight, you know, they're, they're just feeling sensitive, whatever. But a church that says, Providing masculine sunlight, and we're here to care. We're here to preach and shut and serve. You know, we um, it's a it's a it's a, an attractive way. That's why you have to have men leading the church, serving the church, and women can come and you know glorify that. You know, flourish in that. And also, it, it explains to you like the the wisest girl attracted to the bad guy, and uh, she knows it's wrong for her. Well, she she found some strength. Especially in her younger years or adolescent years, uh, she's attracted to the man with physical strength. And this is why when you're young, I really, it is really important to get physically strong when you're young. Because when you get older, it's more and more difficult. Um, but that, that is, that's an important ingredient to, to being a man. Is, you know, if, if, I'll put it this way. If, you're, if your woman can beat, you, can beat you in arm wrestling, she will divorce you. In normal, okay? If, if, if she can beat you up and take you down, then she hasn't married a man, all right? Um, and she hates it. Oh, my gosh, she hates it. Later in life, she's going to gravitate more to, he's providing for me. I need, I need something. So, so that's where you can go from. She goes from the desire for a man's seed to the man's sustenance. And the sad thing in a fallen world right now, what men, what women's, wicked women do, They'll pursue this man for sex and this man for the sustenance, that is the, the financials. She said, oh, I'll have sex with this guy, but I'll go and marry this guy. And that, this is where hypergamy has been split. This is what Rolo talks about a lot, where it's a very difficult world right now where a lot of women, they'll go in, in their younger years, get that from this guy. And then when she's 29 years old, she's thinking, okay. I had fun. I got all that from these guys. Now I can go and marry uh, the guy who can just provide for me. A righteous woman seeks both of these in one man. A righteous woman says, I'll get my, my romantic desire satisfied from this one man and my provision and my, uh, my, my needs you know, from this one man. 
and that's that's the challenge that men have today is is you know because you, you live in the world a very complicated world now. Okay. Any more questions on this? Yes. Just ask uh, the uh, passage in Genesis two uh, sixteen. Uh, how do you interpret the, the uh, uh, judgment on uh, Eve? Uh, where uh, that's three sixteen, right? What three sixteen? Three sixteen. Yeah. Uh, your desire shall be for your husband. I have studied that for years, and I'm more and more convinced that what I'm, what I'm going to tell you is most accurate to the text. And there's a prototype of this, I'm going to get to it. In the context right there, first of all, there's a prototype of redemption. Um, God cast down the serpent from a, from a Beast of the field to the to the dirt. He promises to crush the head of the serpent with the seed of the woman. And then God, what he does is he, at this stage of history, in a prototype fashion, he destroys the works of the devil. Right here. And that's what he does in Genesis 3, 3, 16. Because what happened? How is he destroying the works of the devil? The devil has destroyed this marriage. Okay? They're divorcing. They're dividing themselves. There's a lot of... And, and, and also, the, the woman had a desire for that servant. The woman traded this husband for that husband. The woman traded that man's word for that serpent's word. And she was, spiritually speaking, attracted to, desiring, and spiritually speaking, in an affair with that serpent. And this is the only reason I can understand why God says this, that God put enmity, hatred between the woman and the serpent. He is pulling that woman away from that serpent. And then he says, she, he says, you will desire your husband. He is, he is, God is renewing the desire uh, for her husband, putting her back. And this, this serpent, remember, he took control of the marriage. He, he became Mr. New Husband, a, a counterfeit husband. And God says, serpent, get away. Adam, you rule over her. So he is restoring the woman's desire. He is, he is repositioning Adam into a husband role and putting them back together so that what? They, she will be fruitful and multiply because death penetrated into her womb and killed it. This is why all the women in the Bible, and, you know, in Genesis, not all of them, but, you know, the women in the Bible were barren, 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 barren. Death entered her womb implicitly and so that she could not have children. And so Satan is des destroying everything here. And God is coming into the, the garden here and says, hey, you know what? I don't care if the devil put death in there. You're, I'm going to bring a miracle and we're going to multiply your conception. Um, and so I, that's why I'm getting that to answer your question. I think in this context right here, God's restoring the marriage. Now, true, a woman's desire in a sinful world can be perverted, manipulative, and things. But what you, some people interpret this to say this, that, oh, what God is doing, he's judging the marriage and making them dysfunctional. Well, my argument is that, no, the devil already did that. When you read the context there, it's already dysfunctional. He's blaming her. She's, you know... Uh, they're, they're got their clothes, you know, they're big leaving each other, they're separating each other. He's a jerk. Um, all, 
Satan's already destroying the marriage. God is coming in there and putting the marriage back together. And this is all prototyp prototypical of what Christ does in, in his casting down the serpent, Revelation chapter 12, crushing the head of the serpent, and even destroying the works of the So God's just fixing the marriage. Um, I thought a lot about this, but I think that's, 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 that's a, to me, that makes sense of all the details in the context there. Any other questions on anything or this? Yeah. The, uh, the use of humor makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, are, are there specific circumstances in which you can use humor? There are kinds of humor that are better than others. And uh, let me demonstrate. Like humor could totally backfire. Let, let me demonstrate. That's really funny. And you're laughing. I'm laughing. Anytime you you can humor something. There's a way in which humor is heavenly, where humor is kind of a, uh, you're, bringing, you're bringing heaven's presence down. And what I mean by heavenly is it's, um, you're bringing some, some so you're showing some kind of joy to the situation. And what I mean by humor is not you're laughing at someone. Um, you're, show, you're showing someone, hey, it's okay. You know, you're trying to model what they what they want to do. If you're laughing at someone and you're, you're sarcastic, I did not mean at all sarcasm. You know, no, I'm not advocating that. But I'm trying to show is that if there is joy in a family, then there's humor, there's joy. Edwin Freeman talks about this in the book Failure of Nerve. He talks about the, the freedom to play and where, where there's a lot of anxiety in the family, everything is so, so serious, you know. <laughs> There's no joy, there's no humor, there's no room for relaxation, there's no play. And to, he, I think in that book, Failure of Nerve, he says that the degree to which they can, they can play and have joy and humor um, is the degree that they can handle, you know, tragedies, trying to hard, hard things, uh, because their playtime is, is expanded. And uh, does that make sense or not? Yeah. I, I, what, what are you really asking your question Thought. I guess the, the question is, you, you, I think you answered it, it's sarcasm is the danger. Yeah. I do not mean at all sarcasm where you're putting someone down. I've seen this before in some relationships. There, he, uh, Sarcasm will continue. It's like a defense mechanism. I'm defending myself with humor. Therefore, I can say whatever I can against you and put you down and injure you emotionally. That's not humor. That, that is, that's a weapon. That's a false humor. Uh, what I'm talking about is, is when we're, we're laughing, we're, we're having a good time, joy. That's my, that's my definition of humor. And I guess whenever, if you ever have a testing situation where a woman is testing, I think it's helpful that if you can come in, if you can show that, sweetheart, no matter how much you hit me, laughing, whatever, it's not going to hurt me. Right? It's, kind of, it's, kind of, it's, it's showing that I have strength. It's not showing, I'm not using it to put you down. I'm, I'm showing you that I, I can handle it. That's why, that's the, all this stuff is like a razor's edge. A, a knife is always going to cut. It's a question of does it cut good or does it cut right? Or, you know, good or bad. That's the best way I can, I guess, answer that. Any other questions on this? And we'll, um, right, we'll pause and come for the last session, which may not be as long as all the others. So, y'all go and take a break with their fourth thing. Let me introduce it this way. I'm not going to redo everything.
so much, like cut off your arm or pluck out your eye. Um, like, what? You know, it makes you think things, you know. He's speaking hyperbole means exaggeration. So this guy came into my office one time and um, he's kind of sitting there, he's kind of drinking too much, he's alcoholic and his wife is leaving him and, and we're talking and, I'm, and he's talking about how his wife needs to come back to him and, and uh, I said to him, I said, I said, did you know what? Let me tell you something. I said, uh, marital love is, is not unconditional. And he like, did this? I said, yeah, it is. She's supposed to love me. And the reason why I said it to him that way, and so I'm going to probe him, because a lot of people, when they use the term unconditional love in marriage, um, they think, they use it in a way sometimes to, to drop their guard, to let themselves down, because you know what? I am who I am, and she should love me for who I am. Um, and so what, what, what's happening, I hate that term, unconditional love in a marriage because of the way it's used. It's used sometimes to encourage passivity, laziness, um, and not, not to give. If you really think about it theologically, uh, I think I'm accurate in saying this. There's only one unconditional, truly, truly, truly unconditional Love, and that's the eternal electing love of God. It is unconditional all the way. But even whenever in time and space, God gives us faith and He brings us in. So he, His election causes us uh, to, to do a lot of conditions of faith and repentance and trust and perseverance, and He helps us feel all those things. Okay, that's theological. I'll look at theological. Let's get practical. So in a marriage, what happens is the man, what we see in this, in this matrix of the relationship, I guess the question is, how does a relationship ever want to get started? And this is, the man is going to give something of himself. And this is what God demonstrates by taking the side out of God. And we talked about time too much, and that's, that's fine. But you see that right now the man is initiating, he's giving something. And the question is this. Will she benefit from it? And when you think about it, every single woman asks that question intuitively and is wondering intuitively, and she renders her verdict, either yes or no. Like, I don't want that guy. I don't want, I don't want to go out with him. Or whatever it is, she has to come to the reason of, yeah, I want him. You know, there's a benefit to the relationship. This is why I'll say this. She is the first... For a relationship to start, um, the, the woman has to be the first beneficiary. And I think about how all this fits together. 
she has to, to judge how I'm going to respond to him. Any response is a judgment. Um, if she responds negatively, she's judging, she's implicitly judging your approach and saying, no, I don't think. If she responds positively, she's implicitly judging your approach. And, you're, and so this is what's going on here. There's a, uh, a benefit, and this also um, helps you realize that in, in a sinful world, you know, this is why a lot of women, they will, if they get older, they'll marry a rich man just for the money. There's a benefit. You know, in a sinful world, Okay, some women will only marry a man for the benefit and not love him, not give her, not give, she will not give him his glory, her, her glory, okay? Uh, she will neglect him. She doesn't want to get intimate with him, but she wants the money, okay? That's a sinful world. You think about this theologically, how this applies. Think about God and you, okay? God gives you all this. God gives you life and everything. And some people love God for what? The benefits only. And, but God's thinking like the husband. I give you benefits, but also I want you to love me. Okay, love me back. So this, I think it's a good, helpful reflection there what's going on here. But this gives you the structure of reality. Um, this is one reason why a... A woman is really not going to respond to you initially or even continually for just who you are. Okay? She, there's going to be a circle that's going to go on here. And it's called what I call the beneficial circle. So he, he gives and she is built. And then God does this. God takes the woman and then brings him, banks her back to the man. And you think, okay, it's no big deal. No, I think it is a big deal. She is acting, God's demonstrating with this action what she is to do. God's demonstrating with this action of how the tennis game goes back and forth, how the love connection is being made. So her glory, he's demonstrating that he wants, if you want this relationship to work out, woman, female, uh, you are going to have to respond to him, come to him. And so we have this circle starting. She comes, the glory is coming, and then the man, does he stop? No. He responds with giving her the name, or giving her a name, a name, and then he even gives her a poem. Some people suggest that maybe he's saying that. This is woman, you know, uh, she, bone my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called Isha, woman. She came out of Ish, that's man. So he's giving back to her. Um, and you think about the dynamics of masculine and feminine. She, when she comes and gives the glory, she's, a, she's I guess you can say she's a, initiating in a sense because now she's giving she's giving something he gives then she gives he's receiving the glory then he gives the name and the poem and then in Genesis chapter 3 it is not accurate to say that she was the first Pharisee who added to the law of God I've heard people say that, that uh, she was a Pharisee and she added to the law of God when she said we shouldn't touch that fruit. No, what she's doing is she is using her intuition to help the man and she's giving an answer to the serpent that is good, that is right, that is lawful because the word touch in the Bible also basically means communion, uh, union. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you know, uh, something about don't touch a woman. It, when he means the word touch, it's the, it's the sexual connotation there. Touching there, if, he, if you touch, you eat. And so she is, she is deducting from the law of God um, helpful advice, intuition. Uh, she is deducting and deducing righteousness. You know, this is why the law of God in Deuteronomy doesn't tell you every single thing to do in every single time, case in, in all of history in, 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 in the Old Testament. It gives you, it gives you, you know, standards, patterns. And you have a case, all judges do this, you have a case and you say, okay, let's name it. This case fits this pattern. Here's the right judgment. That's what she's doing with the law of God. And so she gives a good answer on behalf of the man here, and because he's standing right there. And then this is where the cycle stops. As soon as Satan, or excuse me, it stops, because the man does not kill the serpent. The man does not fight, he does not defend, and the serpent wins. Now we have a serpent husband. A serpent husband. He takes control. And when you study this, what's going on, there begins the taking. It's not giving. And you can think about how this works out. He starts unwinding the circle. Uh, the serpent has now taken the man's role. Okay, he is going to take the woman for himself. Um, they, whenever they come together in this sacrament, it's like a satanic sacrament. And you think about uh, he, Adam is going to take away her glory, meaning you can have that serpent, woman. I'll have that fruit. So he is taking away her glory by giving her to a, another husband. And she is taking away his leadership saying I'll have the leadership or I'll have another man's leadership. I'll have servant leadership not you. So when they commune together in that satanic sacrament they're taking from one another. Um, so total destruction of the marriage begins. Um, they're taking and all the giving stops. That's where so my theory is is that and I would suggest to you that the if the benevolent circle would have kept going, giving, giving, because there's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's this benevolent circle going up in the highest of heavens. They're constantly giving to one another. The Father says, Son, I'll give you glory. The Son says, I'll glorify the Father, Father. Holy Spirit says, I'm going to glorify the Son. And I'm totally plagiarizing Jeff Myers right here. He, he, he's the one who developed all this, the circle theology of love. And it's beautiful. You see that in the passages of Scripture. They're handing glory to each other. Well, this is what's happening here. The man is to hand and glorify his wife with his authority. He is naming her. He's using the sunlight. It's starting in a very microcosmic way. She's using her future intuition to, uh, hey, let's not touch that. He's, she's helping him with her glory on that future fashion. He's helping her on the glory of his authority. And they're on their way to Song of Solomon in the highest of heavens, okay? And that would have been the trajectory. But Satan comes in and starts to do this and bring it to hell. And this is why I think this is the paradigm for, for marriage. Is that any man who gets married... Uh, you, you, 
woman gets married, it is a benevolent circle. Um, the woman is not going to desire a man or love a man truly, truly, truly unconditionally the rest of her life. I mean, just look at the world. This is why there's divorces. I love him, I love him, but then they turn into a jerk or whatever. You know, she, she needs benefits of that marriage to, to desire him, to want to sleep with him, to want to be with him. Um, she, and, I, and you need benefits from her of her response, her, her feedback, her intuition, all these things that you talked about earlier when old people are 80 years old and they're married and they just think, they, they, they've learned the circle. They learned the, that this is a beneficial relationship and we learn to keep this, keep this going. Um, that's why I call the, but I, I think it's helpful to see three matrix points, you know, of this and it gives us men who are very graph oriented uh, tools to, to to weaponize this or use it for a weapon for, for good, you know. Now, lastly, let me say this. So there's, there's a first beneficiary and a second beneficiary. And I'm going to say something that's, uh, well, this is why the question oftentimes a woman is intuitively asking whenever a man approaches, whenever a man advances, her, her question is why. You may have heard this comically on some issues. Of, you know, a man, uh, she's thinking, why? What, what, what have we done? What, what have we done romantic? Uh, was, is this a good context? Is this the right place? And, you know, the man in the sunlight, he's already, he's ready. You know, uh, he's approaching. Here's a benefit. Here, or here's, an, uh, here's a time for intimacy. Uh, right now, and she's like, why? You know, this is, this, it helps you realize that if you want to have a have had the circle, there needs to be a contribution. You can't go unconditionally, you know, in, in the sense of that she's very environmentally oriented. She is going to be very sensitive to what has gone on throughout the day that we're going to have a good night together. You know, a man who thinks that I can do this and, and be be a jerk and be mean or whatever and then have a good night with her, you give nothing for her to respond to positively. And so the, the answer to this, she needs to intuitively know that, yeah, if there's going to be a good night together, uh, that you've already answered why. You've already answered her question. And therefore, she has a, a good response. And this is why it's always important for a man to, to understand you can call game, you can call approach, or you can call it wisdom. Is how do you approach a person and you know and you want to start the circle of benefit and encourage it to go on? And that's that's why it's helpful to realize that in the matrix here, she's a first beneficiary and he's a second beneficiary. And you gotta keep that going. Um, I'll pause right there for any other questions. I don't want to just keep repeating myself. Eric, uh, on that last point, Pat Booth often makes the uh, point that uh, for, for women, the uh, uh, frame of intimacy is uh, continuous 24-7, that, that in a marriage you're always lovemaking, from a woman's perspective. And then yeah. for, for a man, their typical thought is, is you know, 15 minutes and surrounds a particular act. But uh, That's a very good illustration that... Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, she's the, she's the receptor, the receiver, the responder, who if, if you expect a response, her intuitive question is, why should I respond that way? Yeah. And if you haven't already answered that question in advance. Yeah. So for women, it's a, it's a continuous, lovemaking is a continuous frame. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's an all-encompassing frame. Like yeah, and this is why the doctrine of just getting it mentally, emotionally, you know, all these issues that you, you go through throughout the day, if you don't get her in a conversation, if you don't understand, you know, all these things of levels of her emotional, mental, and intimate times of, a, you know, in the sense of a being in her brain and connecting with her in those levels, then she doesn't, then you haven't answered the why question as to why she would want to be physically intimate with you. So, so I think that's really helpful at a very young age, especially for, for men to understand that that's that feminine nature. And a more theological thing, I just love how the Bible is illuminating all of this. The Bible is like demonstrating this. And so I think you can go read all the sex books and all the you know, relationship books in the world, but you're not ever going to get outside this matrix that I just showed you because this is what the Bible's teaching. It's just going to be an improvement. Jonathan, what? what? In your circle there, when the, the serpent came, Uh, it, it, a lot of this is implicit. You can think about this. And this stuff that's so beautiful. You keep chewing on the Bible and juice keeps squeezing out of it. And that's what we're all going to do the rest of our lives. But you can think about this. She's being given over to a, a serpent, another husband. And so now there's an affair. <clears throat> um, in some sense, she's going to be identified with him. She is now Mrs. Serpent. You know? So it's an implicit type of main change, I guess, you can play with and think about. But again, this is the reason why God, at this moment later, had to put enmity or hatred between this uh, false husband and this false relationship, this affair that they're having. Um, you know, of course, not sexual, but it's, but it's the spiritual identity, the, the union of a, of a false one. You think about this, too. All, all, usually, all affairs begin with an emotional connection, with a... Um, a, a connection of intimacy on on a communication level on a um, emotional level somebody is connecting with her or him where the partner is not and it, it starts with that verbal it starts with that emotional and then it gets physical okay and that's that's kind of what's going on here is is the affair with the serpent you have this he, now we have a change of authority who is going to give her whose word whose word controls dictates this woman. Is it his word or is it the serpent's word? And this is where James George is really good on this. It's not about God's word right now as much as it is the man's word. God delegated his word to the man. And now Satan is going after the man's word that was given to the woman. The Satan is saying, that's not the man you want. I'm the man you want. I have God's word. Trust me. Um, <clears throat> Anybody else uh, questions of all of this? And if also, if you, I'm free for feedback or disagreements or anything. So, one application of this is uh, 
don't, don't use the word unconditional love. It's just, you know, use benevolent love. Angle in that way. Or it's a circle to benevolence. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a giving relationship. It's a giving relationship. If it, if it stops giving, then lights will go dim. The future will not be happy. And it all goes to kaput. Yeah. How would you, so for most of us, we're married and I think understand how this makes sense. But how would you, what would you say for these, specifically these four boys in the front who are not married? How do you, how do you work from being a single man to a married man in this, in this framework? There's a variety of answers to that. And I think about, like, if my son was right here, what would I tell him to do, you know? And um, so if I say one thing, it's not the primary. I'm just saying that there's, it's kind of like um, all these things have to de- start developing. But here's a couple of things. Number one, surround yourself with the right people. Um, uh, you are going to be, pla- we're all plastic. We're conditioned by the people. Surround yourself with mentors who are successful. Uh, surround yourself with an, in an occupation where they, you have people ahead of you and you need to be going somewhere. A woman will marry you. You may not, may, may not have arrived yet, but you're going somewhere. And so if you, really, if you want a wife, she needs to see ambition. She needs to see drive. She needs to see motivation. And she needs to see confidence. And if you can, you can get that from the tribe of men that, that are around you, and that has to be a godly tribe, and that has to be a strong tribe, and all that stuff. And so he, a uh, young man, needs to lean on, on older men. And if you have that, you think about the word matrix. matrix all these patterns, we're all being shaped by, by stuff. That's one thing to emphasize. Now, that's a tribal dimension of it. Personal dimension, uh, you need to take care of yourself. Physically, uh, you need to get strong. You need to exercise. You need to work out. Uh, you need to um, eat right. Um, all, all these things that in the obesity in our culture and all these other things, this stuff, that all plays into it. That trickles into it. So uh, take care of yourself in that sense. Um, and then, one other word to remember is that... Uh, Rolo uses this word. It's called one-itis. If you ever, if you ever fall in love with a girl, um, if it doesn't work out, don't, don't do not get the disease of one-itis. Meaning, she's the only one. I love her so much it didn't work out. It, no, <clears throat> there is all the fish in the sea. There's all these women to choose from. Um, you do not revolve around her in the sense that if she goes down your mission is out and you're kaput. No, if she, if she doesn't fall in line with you, then she wasn't right for you. And uh, she doesn't back your play, then um, it's, it's more her problem, not yours. Uh, she's got the problem, not you. That is your perspective because you're the alpha. You're the man. You're going. You're going to school. You're going to education. And when you're 30 years old, this is what you plan to be doing. And you get that vision to a female. Oh, really? You know, this is what submission is all about. Submission is a girl giving her glory, 
behind the man saying, keep going, keep going. So I think that type of confidence, that all of that uh, filtered into the heart of a, of a young man is, in, from, from so many dimensions is, is very critical uh, for, for having a future marriage later on. Um, Jonathan? Absolutely. Yeah. And even if you hit a brick wall, you just keep going. I'll give you one reason I'm the way I am in my communication stuff is the molding that my own father made toward me. He had five boys. He did all he could to provide for us. And I remember, and I respect my dad in this sense, and, and for this one, one, one of the many things. But one thing I remember is he had a test he had to take for something. And he kept failing, he kept failing, he kept failing. And um, I think on the sixth or seventh time, he finally passed it. Well, people were telling him, you know, hey, it's not God's will, or do something else. And, and I'm like, I can see, that's just one sample of so many brick walls that my dad actually broke down, metaphorically speaking. He would come to a brick wall, and he would make a way. It was just, that was his nature. Boom, you know, and uh, it's just, uh, so it, it, it reminds me, and I think it reminds all of us, you will hit brick walls, you will hit financial problems, you will hit emotional problems, uh, but, but the strength of God gives you the tenacity, the masculinity to say, you know what, I'm going to figure it out, I'm going to find a way, and we're going to break through. I've got to get to the Bible too. The, the life of Jacob is this way. Jacob is regenerated in the womb, and he basically does righteousness all of his life, he rightly deceives his father, rightly, rightly buys the birthright from, from Esau, and he figures it out. And God rewards him in the end and says, you struggle with God, with men, and with God, and you know what? You won. Good job, son. You worked it out. That's a metaphor of the whole life of, a, of a, all of us. Um, we struggle as men, but you know what? God wants you to figure it out. And he's, he, when you figure it out and you break through the brick walls, then you're becoming more and more like God. Um, so have that in, in that perspective. That answer your question, Jonathan. To, but um, that's what I encourage the guys to. And, I, and you always have to be optimistic in, in, a, in a good way. I don't care how bad the world gets, how socialist it gets, how communist it gets. Um, there's, you, you cannot look at the future in such a dark light that it, that it quells you, that it that it kills your drive, it kills your motivation. There's always, I, I use this phrase to my kids like, hey, you're going to conquer the world. Ella Grace, boy, Ella Grace. You'll conquer the world today, baby. God bless you and keep you because his face is shining upon you and be gracious to you. I love you. You know, that play into that phrase, you know, conquer that world. So that, that's the whole point there. And I think that that helps shape even children. Um, and, uh, okay, I'll stop talking. Any, any other questions about this? But, or contributions. Um, this is one of those things where when I drive home this afternoon, I'll be like, man, I could have said this, I should have said that. <laughs> and uh, y'all be thinking the same thing. I could have asked him that and that. And again, what you could do is, uh, if we want to talk about that anymore, I'm open for that conversation. I'll, I'll mention a few books too. Jonathan asked me to say this. Uh, there's some books out there I would not recommend because they're 
vulgar, they're despicable, it's, it's kind of like uh, only 50% is good. But there's other, other books, like for example, um, Mike Foster just published a book called It's Good to Be a Man. And I have not read it yet, but I, but I, but I have heard about it. And one of the guys who I respect read it and said, y'all, what he did was in that book is he, he grabbed all the truths from these other places and, read, and put it in a, in a and consolidated it in a way to where it's readable, it's not offensive, and it's profitable. So one book is good to be a man. Another book I kind of leaned on with this psychology stuff is Failure, Failure to Be a Nerd, or Failure of Nerd by Edwin Freeman. It's a book on leadership. And he basically does the same thing with a leader has, you know, there's going to be, and he uses terms. Like I said, when you give, get language to identify something, then you can, he gives you language to show, show that there's sabotage, there's triangulation, and a man is a leader. And the woman is going to try to sabotage it every now and then. She's going to test it. She's going to triangulate. And so that's a, that was a helpful book on leadership. Uh, Who's that author again? Ed, Edwin Freeman and the, the, is the author, and the book is called Failure of Nerve. And his whole point is leadership is, is simply about don't lose your nerve. When you lose your nerve, there you go, you failed. <laughs> okay. And uh, you had your hand up. I was just going to say, David, it's good to be a man. Something that you were just discussing, one of the things he says in, I think, the first chapter or second chapter, he talks about how man's on a mission, whether you're a young man or an old man, you're yeah. on a mission. And, you know, going back to Andrew's question about, you know, these young men in the front, your goal is to find that woman to bring her into your mission, yeah. not to circle your mission with her. And he, just, he makes that point so... That's a mirror reflection of what I... It's, you can use different language, you know, frame, you know, she comes behind. Otherwise, it's not going to work. She has to have that leader, that hypergamy, all, all those other terms. That, that, that he's, exa- he's explaining it. Yeah, exactly what I just said right there. I haven't read the book yet, but uh, I feel like that he would say absolutely. Well, what I was using in this really was trying to use the Bible. He's using kind of psychology, I guess. But I'm using creation. And I'm trying to show you that the sun and the moon are actually re- reflecting the truths of that book and what even non-Christians observe. So it kind of defends the biblical faith even more when you see it, it illumines reality. Um, trying to give another helpful book. Yes, sir, Randy? I just have uh, this similar to another term that I've used is mission and submission. It helps to explain the word submission. It means to come under the mission. Yeah. So man is given the mission and he has to communicate Another imagery that I've used to communicate that is a football line of scrimmage where you are on the, the one-yard line and you're one yard from making a touchdown. The, the uh, quarterback grabs the ball and runs in and then somebody comes behind the quarterback and does this. Pushes him as much as he can into the goal line. I think that's beautiful. He's got, he's got the direction. He's got the football. But somebody pushes him over and helps him get into the end zone. And that's submission. It's, a, it's an active 
work of how can I utilize my glory to, you know, how are you men? Don't you know you, you thought you could conquer the world when every woman said, yeah, you can do it. You're like, really? <laughs> you know, she pushes with her glory. Go around. Someone should marry pushy women. Who pushed in the right direction. Yeah, all that. Uh, and, and this is one of those conferences where if, if there was full of female men and women, you got to be sensitive to this stuff. You know, I can talk to y'all, frankly, but it, you, you got to angle in with a woman different, and it's good that all of us, uh, it's all men here. Thank you, Randy, for that, that observation. That's a helpful term, and always remember the, the sub mission is under a man's calling and goal. One more thing real quick, what you said, anytime you arrive, you're on, you're, you're on your new beginning line. You know, you got to keep going, you got to keep going. I don't care how old you are, just say, sweetheart, that's what we're going to do next. Let's, let's go have fun over here. Let's keep going, going forward. You go ahead, though. Uh, before you wrap up, I don't know if you have more to say, but do you have any thoughts? I'd be interested to hear as, the, uh, as Yahweh responds, uh, your curse, your ground's curse. The curse. Uh, let, me, let me just talk about it and see if I answer the question. First of all, I think God is trying to start the circle of benevolent love again. He is renewing her desire. He is renewing his rule so they can start the circle. And you see it. He gives her a better name or a new name. He does not call her the mother of death, which he would have done if he was still a jerk. And um, blaming her for everything. You know, this woman you gave me, that's why I ate. He calls her the mother of life. It shows he's upgrading her name from Isha, that's woman, to the mother of life because he's looking forward to the future life that she is going to bring into the world. So it shows his repentance. It shows that the circle of love is going, starting up again here. Um, and um, is that answer your question about how, how it is? That's one part of it. Um, it, just, it those, that, all that stuff is mixed with ju- blessings and judgments. It's some redemptions and some punitive things. Uh, Adam is going to eat his daily bread. That's a good thing. Lord Jesus, give us our daily bread. We pray in the Lord's Prayer. But some, something's going to drip from his nose. Literally, it's a nose. It's the same place where the Spirit blew into him. It's not his brow, it's his nose. And he is going to sweat for it. So there's a blessing mixed with the curse. She's going to have multiplication of, of children, many, many, many children, but it's going to be painful. And so what you see is that God is kind of like dealing with his children. He is, he is really spanking them bad, but he's, he's mitigated. And this is a, a, ra- a type of wrath coming upon them. It's a seed of wrath. Hell is a full version of wrath and judgment. Um, And then he clothes them. He actually, you want to grow up? Okay, grow up. You want to get the the fruit? Okay, you got to live with it. Now you got to get out. It's kind of like if a a teenager gets pregnant, they got got to grow up fast and they got to move on with the future. 
that's basically what they did. They grabbed for adult rule, adult responsibility, and now God says, okay, you got to grow up. Here's some clothes. You're forgiven. I sacrificed the animal. You're justified by faith. Uh, but you got the curses and the promises. The curses on the creation and the promises of redemption. Now move out. And that's the best way I can quickly summarize what's going on there. And some of that is, is reflecting this, but I think a lot of it is redemptive in the in the getting the circle of in fixing the marriage. Um, does that answer your question, Jonathan? Okay. Uh, and then I'll get oh wait a few more seconds. Anybody else? Um, I'm going to go ahead and close this with prayer. I thank y'all very much for having having me, and I'm enjoying to see all you guys. I'm actually encouraged to see so many of y'all here. <laughs> um, I don't see many young men in my church. And this is like, just, it's a, it puts fuel in my spiritual tank. I'm, I'm serious. And I'm thankful for all y'all being here. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom that is wiser than a serpent. That you will give us all wisdom to be the right, great sunlights in our, our marriages and our families. We pray, Father, that you be uh, with, with our families or with our wives, that you will give them grace, that you will help them see the beauty of Scripture. We pray, Father, for all of our churches, that you will bless our, our congregations with healthy and fruitful marriages. We pray, Father, that you will cause a wave of revival and reformation throughout our country that will bring people to the biblical worldview and give us all wisdom to apply Scripture to all of our life. And we appreciate, Lord, how you have grown us from glory to glory and how you've given us a bright and glorious future ahead of us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.